So MotoGP returns from its summer break and a weekend dominated by Dovi, Digi and the Dentist. Welcome to Bike Live. Let's go! Uh, this is episode 72 of Bike Live as we look back on the second half of the MotoGP season getting underway at the Czech Republic at Brno. We will look back on a brilliant weekend with one of those very rare weekends in Grand Prix motorcycle racing where all three races on the bill delivered. Uh, MotoGP delivered a Ducati 1-2 as Andrea Dovizioso took his first win since the opening round in Qatar. Uh, and we'll review all the big stories coming out of that race. Um, as Mark Marquez extends his championship lead, we have a new championship leader in Moto2 as Miguel Oliveira uh, takes the championship lead away from Francesco Bagnaia with his second win of the year. And we had a brand new winner in Moto3 and a brand new pole sitter, which very much delighted the fans in attendance. Uh, Confile taking his first ever pole. Fabio Di Gian Antonio just is finally done as he takes his first Grand Prix victory six or seven races after he had earlier taken one on the road, only to have it stripped away from him. We'll also talk about the action from Thruxton last weekend. British Superbikes return to action. Leon Haslam's even winning around Thruxton now. Um, and we'll talk about all the big silly season news in Moto2 that's broken this week as seats are filled ahead of next year. And one of the riders who is in the thick of the action at Thruxton may well be joining that particular class next year. Uh, my name is Lewis Sutterby. Welcome to all of you that are joining us for episode 72. And uh, joining me this week is a man who put a whole new meaning to the term fearless um, last Sunday um, by wandering into a Monster Energy-backed suite full of likely Valentino Rossi motorcycle racing fans in full Mark Marquez merch. It's Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. Zero fucks given. <laughs> I, I, I have to say, I saw your initial social media post. And I thought, they're going to kill him. <laughs> like, we, we, like, we've lost Andre Harrison. <laughs> like, oh, you know what they say, right? Valley of the shadow of death. I shall not fear thee. Yeah. Um, yeah, like to be fair, there was a few more Marquez fans down there okay. than I than I anticipated. So it, it, I wasn't completely out of place, although. Like, I must admit, I did get some stranger looks from some of the Monster Energy girls around there <laughs> for sports, for sporting, um, like, you know, did, not the first time my girls looked at me like that, um, <laughs> but uh, a lot of disappointed looks um, from me coming up in a, not only Mark Marquez gear, but a helmet that's got Red Bull written square on the <laughs> side of it. Um, bit awkward. Yeah, um, I, I have to... Uh, yeah, there we actually have some money on me. Um, but uh, yeah, um, bit of a bold strategy on my part. Um, but yes, yes, I was in Renault this weekend, and uh, yeah, it was it was quite the experience, I have to say. Um, a lot of a lot of interesting observations, a lot of a lot of really kind of crazy moments in there as well, which I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll get to. And I drop little jibs and drabs as well as obviously the main point which amazingly Lewis dedicated the whole first segment of this show to me being in Bruno I was like oh <laughs> yeah, we will get to um, I mean in, uh, in just a <laughs> second um first of all though um, the places you can find us um now that we are both back in Blighty um facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101 is the main place you can find us as well as on Twitter you can follow us at motorsport underscore 101 um, our YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Um, head over there right now for uh, a podcast highlight from uh, last week's episode of Motorsport 101. Uh, rather unfortunately timed as we uploaded a video discussing <laughs> False India's administration moments after they came out of it. 
Um, yeah, great. Well, well timed, Feathers. Well, uh, well played. <laughs> but it is, it is still well worth a listen anyway. Um, so do, do, do check that out now on, on YouTube. Um, our website is monosport101.com where you can find written content from the team as well. And if you like us so much that you want to back us financially and earn yourself early access um, to both of our weekly shows, um, that's Bike Live and Motorsport 101. It's patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101. We're not going to tell you anything just yet, but just be, but be aware that there will be a very, very cool giveaway coming very, very soon um, <laughs> over there. Um, so there's never been a better time to back us. Um, if you back us at the $5 level, you get both of our podcasts early. If you, get, um, if you back us at the $10 level, you get to listen to these live and listen to these podcasts as they were recorded. Um, episode 154 of Motorsport 101 was recorded earlier this week and will be live by the time you're listening to this. Um, it's a bit difficult for me to go to Andre Harrison at this stage to tell us what's coming up because he wasn't on it this week. Um, it I was wasn't... flying home. <laughs> he was flying home. Um, so, um, And I haven't listened to it yet because I've not got around to editing it yet. So, um, <laughs> in the absence of that, um, I'll tell you basically who was on it. It was an all-American lineup um, for this week. As, of course, uh, as, finally. Uh, as, <laughs> as King and RJ were joined by uh, Patrick Hofstetter and Chris DeHardy. Um, and they discussed uh, all of the big news, particularly the uh, racing taking place in America at the moment, and the big silly season news that broke since we were last speaking to you on Motorsport 101, which was, of course, the story of Daniel Ricciardo ditching Red Bull and heading to Renault. Um, so, uh, so that takes headline billing um, on this week's episode of Motorsport 101, episode 154, which you can listen to right now very, via all of the channels that I just mentioned to you. You can find that podcast. Um, right then, let's get on with this podcast and talk about Bruno last weekend. And um, as Dre mentioned, let's talk about um, your weekend, Dre. And um, I mean, you can you can go about this any which way you want, but it, it's a very broad question. You can take it whichever way you like. Mm. I mean, it's the first time you've followed, obviously you've been following MotoGP, you've been watching it for many, many years now, but it's the first time you've watched it trackside. I mean, just how was it? Oh God! Um, it was an incredible experience. Um, like I said, I've, I've been I've been fortunate enough, thanks to friend of the show Adam Johnson, to do a couple of BSB rounds at Brands Hatch, which is obviously my local track. Obviously, being from West London, it's only about an hour up the road, so it's not all that bad. Um, but uh, this is the first time I've ever been to a MotoGP event. The first time I've actually flown out of a country in about eleven years. Uh, I don't get out very much, <laughs> listeners, um, for better or worse. Um, that's just me being honest with you. Um, but uh, yeah, like Bruno was incredible. Now, for those guys that didn't hear the news or last week or anything like that, I, I was very fortunate to win a competition with Monster Energy Tinker, and I didn't realize it was basically an all-expenses-paid trip to Bruno. Three nights in a four-star hotel, getting literally wined and dined. Like, like there was a freaking enormous wine bar in in the hotel. It was ridiculous, and like there was a Monster Energy fridge, like a full, like literally just like kitchen-sized fridge of Monster Energy cans, which amazingly was still somehow empty by the time we got to the end of day three. Uh, again, I think a bunch of people have gotten the idea. Oh wait, they're on the house, um, so they're just like they're just like they're gonna sneak them upstairs and just like sneak them into their friggin' main bag of luggage, hoping they get like a free like half crate of, of Monster, because of course Monster sponsor the Bruno Grand Prix now. In case you didn't know already, which I think is quite funny, given that free Red Bull backed riders won all three races. Yeah. <laughs> Insert your own joke here. But um, no, it was it was an unbelievable experience. The hotel was only about fifteen minutes away from the track. Um, like like it is an enormous track like people had been there from wednesday i think camping for the whole weekend there was like monster was huge they had they had, they had a big executive suite um the opposite side of the main grandstand um i must admit like bruno's main grandstand is actually a fair bit 
cooler than it, than it looks like on TV, which I thought was quite funny. And Saturday was only about half full, believe it or not. Like, the attendance was not as big as I thought yeah, it was well, going to be. I have noticed from seeing some of the attendance mm. figures, this round really has suffered from the introduction of the Austrian round a week after it. Yeah, like, I, I, was, I was curious, because, like, even on race day, there was still a lot of empty seats in the main grandstand. Like, you could have still, still probably... Then. It's still 80,000, but it's normally over 100. Mm. So it's like they've clearly taken a hit. Um, and people are not spending the big money on the grandstand tickets because there was still a lot of they're blue grandstand Austria. seats. Yeah, they're, 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 like you're forcing fans to pick and choose. Like, you know, if you can go to Austria, which is apparently dirt cheap and apparently quite a nice facility-wise from what I've been told by people that have been there for the F1 races before. Um, yeah, it looks like the fact that... Um, they're now splitting with Austria to a degree, and they're in very similar areas. It looks like Bruno has taken a hit in terms of attendance for sure. So, yeah, that was one of the biggest surprises of the weekend. Like, the attendance was not what I thought it was going to be. But, like, MotoGP is a totally different experience when you watch it live. I'll say that for well, free. That's what I was, was going to ask you, first of all, <laughs> because, I mean, I, 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 could, I could speak for this for the first time I saw it trackside at Silverstone back in 2014 now. And,. You, you get an appreciation on TV of just what it's like, um, just the sheer skill and the sheer speed of it all. But when you're stood there trackside, and, and it, it, these, it's these kind of things that you can't really quantify, that you can't really put across to the listeners who perhaps haven't been there, but just the sounds, the smell, the atmosphere, just, just the buzz you get as a bike goes past. And it, it's, not, it's not as if you can necessarily see all the track because you know there's, there's no one part of the track where you can see it all because... You know, unless you go to somewhere like Brands Indy, you're not going to be able to see anything. You're only seeing a small part of the racetrack. But I, exactly. I just cannot put across to the listeners just the buzz that you get from being trackside. It's it's every bit as well. It's every bit worth the. Well, that's whether you're paying for a ticket or not. It just makes the whole experience worth it just to be there trackside and just to experience the buzz and the speed and the skill of these riders and machines. Oh god, yeah. It's it, like the atmosphere was unbelievable. There was there's a giant tunnel that runs underneath the track to get from one side to the other. And spoiler alert, kids, a sea of yellow out yeah. there. Like, like I know there was we'll 80,000 on. Yeah. There was a sea of yellow on race day, 80,000. I, I said on Twitter, I reckon about 75% of the merchandise on display was for Valentino. I know you're all shocked listening to this. Um, like, but yeah, it, they don't exaggerate. Like, it really is like one of the Rossi Mecca rounds. Like, there was, I mean, thankfully as well, there was a big campaign from Dorna in general to tell the, the fans, please stop launching flares before the races started. And to be fair, the guys on the main grandstand were very well behaved. And I, I'm glad that uh, I didn't see a single flare go off during the race, which, which was a good sign. So that's what they clearly got the message. Um, because, yeah, that was a big campaign about that. Because well, you, you, you might cast your mind back to Mugello, the, like the warm up lap. It was just, it was yellow clouds um, everywhere. Acid, so they were chucking them into the final chicane. Indeed, and that was, and that's ridiculous. That's that's dangerous and completely nonsensical. So yeah, Dawn has gone out of their way. They they got all the riders to hold up a sign saying, for the safety of the riders, please. Although, don't uh, although as many as many race. will have found out from this past week, and um, mm. you know, if you go back to some of Donald Trump's previous antics, um, putting a social media post with someone holding up a blank sign with writing on it is always very very dangerous. No, no, <laughs> it's, it can be memed very easily. Yes, yes, it can. I know a friend of the show, Chris Cook, was guilty of that one. Yeah. Where he replaced it with the quote, P is stored in the balls. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> God. 
this this was such an easy target. It's like, oh no. I, I saw that on Sunday on Sunday morning and I was like, someone on Twitter is going to mean this. Mm-hmm. It's 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 far too big an open goal, and yeah, I'm I, the people jumped on that. It's the same as Lewis Hamilton when he was out there in Dominica and cleaning up something, and he was just surrounded by trash bags, and I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> I smell potential in this format. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, like the atmosphere was absolutely incredible. Um, like, again, it, it was... it. There was, again, the big seats, not as big as I thought they were going to be, but people in the area in general, massive, massive buzz, massive atmosphere. Um, crowd exploded on two or three on two or three big occasions during the races, which I'll get to later on. But there is nothing quite like it. The sounds as well. Um, I've never heard a MotoGP bike in the flesh before, and it's it's like they have a really weird buzz sound at the end when when they're coming past you. It's 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 a bit like when you ride a bicycle and you playing card on the back spoke to make a sound because it sounds like a bike engine it sounded almost exactly like that it's 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 ridiculous it's something you'd never really you, you, you don't get that impression on television you can only really get it when you're actually down there and it was crazy the moto 2 bikes were, were like the, the engines are they're so loud i didn't even like they're even louder than yeah that like it's like a fleet of wasps has come past it has come past the turn one apex i mean i was on the main straight because the monster suites in opposite the main grandstand so i was on the the home straight pretty much the entire weekend directly above the garages um so you could see the riders go past as they were coming out and in on sunday there was a risk of rain so they were you could see them working on the wet bikes outside just in case um and you could hear the whistling sound coming past them because i was right on top of ktm so i was right literally above Miguel Oliveira and Brad Binder's garage and you could hear them coming out into the pit lane and the, and the buzzing sound is crazy you just don't get that on, impression on TV it's unlike anything I never heard before and very different to what I was expecting so yeah an unbelievable atmosphere as well it's like it's something you, you just don't get on TV for sure Absolutely, and uh, we we pride ourselves here on Bike Live, and we we try very hard not to be one of those podcasts that mentions Valentino Rossi every turn, um, as as many MotoGP publications and and shows do, um, understandably because he's the biggest star in the sport, one of the biggest stars in motorsport. Period. Um, but I had to mention him in in this context, Dre, because I noticed it much like you did, I suppose, when I first went to a race, and I particularly noticed it in 2015 at Silverstone when he won um, in mm. the wet. And it's obviously something that MotoGP is going to lose in the next few years. But I think it's, it's another one of those things that you perhaps don't quite appreciate until you're there and in the middle of it. Just what Valentino Rossi brings to a MotoGP race. Yeah, I said it on Twitter. I'll say it again here. 75% of the fans were dressed in either blue or yellow for Valentino. And wasn't the, the biggest most- cheer in qualifying for the guy qualifying second? Yeah, like Dovi had crossed the line, had had snatched pole with a fantastic lap at the end of that session after people thought that Marquez had stolen it right at the end. But Dovi blitzed it by a couple of attempts. But the roar came when Valentino Rossi got on the front row in second place. And everyone was like, whoa! It was was like, oh, God. I was like, even the suite I was in was like, Rossi! Because half the the suite guys, these, these were people from over Europe because they were running the same contest in places like Ukraine and Russia and Italy and half the group was Italian and couldn't even speak English so, but you could hear the Rossi in the background when he came over the line and got on the front row yeah there is like I cannot understate this enough 
Valentino brings shit to the table that nobody else can in all of motorsports. It is not even close. Like, we talk about how popular Lewis Hamilton is in the context of F1. F1 is a proper melting pot by comparison. In MotoGP, it was at least seven. It was 75% Rossi, 15% Marquez, and 10% everything else. Like, Marquez was the clear number two by quite some way. I'll give you another good example. I was actually watching in the pit lane as well, because obviously during the paddock passes, people get to go to the pit lane and, you know, get some autographs, maybe some photos. They'll, they'll rev the bikes up a little bit, so you, they'll, they'll display them up the front. Like, Rossi and Marquez had about 80% of the fans in the pit lane at any given point in time. They had the most attention outside their garages, and it wasn't even close. <laughs> like, like Rossi's, again, slightly bigger than Marquez's stack in front of the, in front of the, of the security tapes, but it was incredible. Like, it's, it's no doubt, like, like Rossi is just... The, the, the support is godlike for him. Like, and I know Bruno is a very popular in general. It's always been one of the better rounds on the calendar for fan attendance and whatnot. So of course you're going to get a, a, you're going to get more Captain Rossi fans there by default. But it is insane until you see it in person. Again, TV doesn't quite do it justice. But you walk around, it's 46 everywhere. The, the yellow branded 46 is everywhere. I saw a flock of like eight fans who was in full blue jumpsuits with, <laughs> with the yellow 46 on it. Like, so, it, it was, it's a cult. I will say it's like a religion in, in, in MotoGP land. Like, you, he is invaluable in what he brings to the table in terms of fan support. The sport will, I think, I think you'll still be seeing Valentino Rossi merchandise for years after he retires. Like, he... Like he is untouchable in in this sport. Like there is nothing like Valentino out there in this sport. It is utterly insane. Yeah, and it's it's one thing I noticed, as I say, from 2015 when he won the race that year, um, and we've seen it in the years since, where obviously he led for a long time at Silverstone last year, and mm. I still remember being in in the media center at, at Silverstone, obviously back at the at the, the down down the pit straight, and Valentino Rossi mm. took the lead of. I think it was 2015, but I think he did the same last year. He took the lead down the end of Hangar Straight, down at Stowe, which is right at the other end of the racetrack. And you could hear yeah. the roar of the crowd from the other end of the racetrack as he took the lead. And it was a roar. It wasn't even the kind of roar that you'd have got when Cal Crutchlow was making progress. And obviously, the Czech Grand Prix doesn't have a Czech rider in MotoGP to measure against no. Valentino Rossi. But well, they do. They, he, have, they have Carol Abraham. But they have Carol no Abraham, one, no but not, not necessarily up at the front. Um, no. Whereas, whereas in Cal Crutchlow in the British Grand Prix always tends to be where you have a direct comparison and he even outweighs the home riders in terms of support uh, oh, at whatever yeah. race he goes to and, and, and as you say that is, that is a that is a void that MotoGP is probably no matter how hard it tries is never going to fully fill it um, when Valentino mm-hmm. Rossi retires because no other rider is going to be ever able to cultivate the, the kind of support that he does um, it is extraordinary. Um, let's talk about the racing that happened then, and he was obviously uh, well and truly in the heart of it. Um, as Jay mentioned, Andrea Vizioso had taken pole position on Saturday, his first pole position since Malaysia 2016, believe it or not. Um, even in that brilliant season he had last year, he never had a pole. Um, but he's had one now uh, in Bruno, and a-, a sensational lap that he set. He was on pole in what was a pretty closely fought qualifying session. He was on pole by nearly three tenths of a second. Um, from Valentino Rossi and a brilliantly measured race rate to win it we'll talk about some of the things that happened on the way to winning it um, in a moment but 
Um, Andrea Vizioso was had a, a mixed bag of a season, it's fair to say, because he started it in brilliant fashion with that win in Qatar when he beat Mark Marquez in a straight fight, as he had done on a few occasions last year, um, but hadn't really been the same since. He'd made a few mistakes that we hadn't really associated with him. It had led some people, I think we perhaps maybe questioned it ourselves, whether he was still the same rider that took Mark Marquez to the limit in 2017 or whether that really was just his one big year. Um but it's fair to say that pretty much from the start, from the get-go in Bruno, it was 2017 Dovi again. Definitely, definitely. And yeah, it was... That's the thing about Dovi. Oh, I almost dropped my headphone. Um, yeah, when Dovi, when Dovi's at the front, he is extremely hard to beat. It's just, it's just as simple as that. He is such an excellent front runner. And yeah, it is quite incredible to say that like he's so good at that and he barely like once he got to the front past rossi like after the first opening laps rossi tried to go from the front just couldn't just didn't have the pace to, to really contend with the front three of dovi lorenzo and marquez but once dovi got to the front he wasn't passed again it, it was as simple as that like nobody had enough raw pace to find enough of a gap to overtake him because Dovi is so demonically late on the brakes. He's, impo- he's he's really hard to pass into a braking zone. And he's so good on corner exit, you're not going to get a run to get a chance to pass him going into an apex. And he's, his bike is he, probably the he, fastest he, in a straight line. It helps when you go, because given that the, the Ducatis were fastest in sectors three and four all weekend because they have the most horses going up horsepower hill, they're not going to get passed into the last chicane very often either. So yeah, like the, the Ducatis... It's weird because people was because Marquez was a heavy favorite going into this into this weekend. He was odds on four to seven to win to win this weekend, and yet you know people are quite rightly quite written off the Ducatis, even though I said, "Well, wait a minute, they haven't really got a bad track anymore." Ducati, no. by the sounds, so they can win anywhere now. Yeah, that was and... that was Dovi's big point, wasn't it? After the race, where he says, "I don't know whether it was Dovi or it was Pablo Gibati who said it after the race, where he says, we now have a bike that works on all circuits.'" Yeah, exactly. It's it, it's now the great all rounder. It's almost taken all away of being the best um, all round um, all all round bike on the field now. Like like we see that uh, Yamaha are struggling in more places. Ducati is the clear number two bike, maybe even the number one bike. Drosser and Crutchlow aren't consistently up the board like Marquez is. It, it's 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 very reminiscent to last year where Ducati seemed comfortable out there and can now be competitive anywhere. We saw Dovi was competitive in her F2 until the accident happened in other tracks where they were looking strong, but then, you know, either through rider error or some other outside issue, they fell down the order, but they haven't got a bad track anymore. And Bruno is always interesting because there's a lot of different ways you can tackle it. And there's a lot of different lines you can take. There's a lot of different ways, you know that you can you can attack it, attack corners. You know, attack up the hill, down the hill. Try you can go inside, outside. We saw Lorenzo try a couple of audacious moves he doesn't normally try. You can do that around Bruno. It's, it's the sort of circuit where there's there's more than one way to skin this cat. But Dovi was the constant. He took the front, set the pace he needed to set, didn't give anybody else an inch, and yeah, just you know, it, it was vintage 2017 Dovi. It's the guy. You're not going to be in a dogfight, and who, when he's at the front, he just doesn't buckle under any sort of pressure. I know, like people were throwing the Iceman nickname at him all of a sudden, which I thought was quite funny. But um, 
he didn't flinch in, despite, again, a couple of audacious attempts from Marquez and, and Lorenzo over the course of the race. Dovi didn't, Dovi didn't give him any sort of idea. It was crazy. No, he didn't. And you're absolutely right in what you say about how difficult he is to overtake because, as you say, he's probably the last of the late breakers in MotoGP. No one breaks as late as Dovizioso does, which makes it so hard to overtake. And that was what Mark Marquez ran into so many times last year and indeed at the final uh, corner of the first race this year um, in Qatar where if you break later than Dovizioso, you're probably not making the corner um, because exactly. of how late he breaks. So. Um, if, you, if you're in any way going to overtake Dovizioso, you need to be alongside him by the time you reach the braking zone. You can't, like, dive at him from further back. Um, as, as Lorenzo found out um, in Bruno, there was a couple of occasions where Lorenzo tried to put moves on Dovizioso, and on every single occasion, he ran wide, and Dovi just dumped, jumped straight back underneath him, um, just as he has to Mar- Marquez um, on so many occasions. And what we saw as well from Dovizioso, and this again takes us back to the Dovi that shone so well and emerged last year as a world-class championship contender, um, was that this race at Bruneau was characterised by tyre management to the point where we heard BT Sport commentator Keith Hewan um, not so much voicing his frustration, but it was clear that he was slightly agitated at the fact that they weren't running as necessarily as far as to the optimal outright race pace as they could. Um, because they were clearly managing their tyres. They wanted to make sure they had some tyre left for the end of the race because they knew that was when it was going to be decided. And because the temperatures, as Dre has already touched on, were so hot um, at Bruno, tyre management was always going to be an issue. Um, and as we saw on a couple of occasions last year, Dre, we saw it at Mugello, we saw it again, particularly in Catalonia last year, when we get into a race of tyre management, when we get into a race of using your intelligence, Davizioso is the go-to man. Yeah, this is exactly what it is. I mean, for the record, um, and I, again, like I had this, I had access to the same telemetry that Keith Ewan was looking at in our suite. They had the telemetry, they had the lap times on the screen. Let me be a bit of a Mythbusters guy here and tell you, if they were tire saving, it wasn't much. Um, the lap times, I mean, but all three of the riders at the front had their fastest laps of the race on the final lap. That's when they really did empty everything. So there was a little bit of that at play, but I wouldn't say it would be more than maybe 0.2, 0.3 of a second. They were faster when they needed to be faster. They were all just kind of feeling each other out. I mean, to the naked eye, you're never going to tell when a MotoGP no. rider is saving something. Like, if if you can do that, then you're clearly a psychic um, because you, you can't do that under normal circumstances. Hewan's made those comments because he can see the lap times. And even then, I don't think like they were deliberately going so much slower that Frankie Morbidelli in 15th place was riding the same sort of lap times. It, that wasn't the case. It was a close competitive race, and a lot of guys were, were, were more competitive than I think people anticipated because, hell, like eight seconds, I think, covered the first 11 riders going over the this race like Bruno is the sort of track where they're only going to make marginal gains there's not a lot of places you can make a lot of time on people um it's good it's always a close weekend as Moto3 will attest um in over the years so yeah I, I don't buy into that to that notion that they were trying to save tires but in those sorts of races as we as proven last year Davizioso was the undisputed king of that he he is a rider's rider he's a thinking man's rider he knows how good his tire is. He knows when his tire's starting to let go. He knows what he has to do to try and save it. 
and he's able to convert that and translate that into the course of a 20 lap race where he knows when he has to push and when he has to save and he knows when to plan his attack. That's how Valentino Rossi won the majority of his races in the two-stroke era when he was this ridiculously dominant rider and no one was coming out of these anti-pushing like racing narratives that we're coming out with now, which we're borrowing from Formula One. So yeah, Dovi is the king of that and I don't believe in this in this massive notion of, you know, over-egging the pudding and, t- and telling riders, oh yeah, they're phoning it in until the last five laps. I just don't think that's the case, really. <laughs> and and it, it kind of, when I look at Davizioso and where he's at now, he's up to third in the championship. He's 68 points behind Marc Marquez, so he's well out of range of that. Um, but Davizioso has had three key errors this season. And that's really what's cost him any chance of, pushing mm-hmm. Mark Marquez as close as he did last year because those three crashes were all out of pretty strong positions. I mean, Hereti was in the they fight were. for second at the time. Le Mans, he may well have finished second um, as it was. Um, obviously, Zarco crashed out of that and Daniel Petrucci ended up taking second in that race. And then Catalunya as well. He was in a pretty good position. He was running in that top four with Marquez, Lorenzo and Rossi when he fell off. Um, so you could easily account for at least well, more than half of that gap that Marcus has over Davizioso um, that he's simply thrown into the gravel trap, um, which yeah. are mistakes that you don't associate with Davizioso. Um, so, I mean, in the second half of the season, in terms of what Dovi can do from here, um, the championship is probably way too far arranged, but there's there's every reason to suggest that Andre Davizioso can at least match what he did last year and finish championship runner-up again. Yeah, like a distant second seems like the best possible aim at this point because Marquez is not having those ropey races anymore again we had the we had the one marquez meltdown in argentina and the one race he didn't run the hard front and that was at Mugello, and that's when he overegged it and crashed which he i believe he's still trying to save to this day <laughs> um so when you only factor all that up it's like it is why i was reluctant to start throwing the nickname Iceman at dovizioso when he's made three critical errors in this season that's cost him massive points and probably the reason why he's probably not going to win the championship this year because he what he started the chain reaction of events at Haref, even though that wasn't totally on him um he had that silly crash when he was leading at Le Mans. he basically got a rush of blood to the head after he'd just taken the lead mm. in that one and then he went down there and and then again in spain a relatively comfortable third chasing marquez and, and, and lorenzo he crashed on that one too and lost the front at turn five so dovi only did that really once last year and that was the final round when he, he openly going way over the limit because he knew he, it was the only way he had any chance of winning the championship he had to give it everything and then some and even then his own teammate wasn't exactly helpful yeah. um so so yeah like dovi we got to be a little bit careful before we start throwing about these nicknames about how he's ice cool under pressure because he's made a lot of unforced errors this year as well mm. as obviously still being his usual brilliant self on occasions this is like I, I want to pump the brakes on the 2017 return just yet because he's, this is only a second race win of the year and he had six last year and yeah he's made a lot of silly errors this this season so far so this is not the prime Dovi of last year yet. He needs to he needs to get two or three more under his front winning to go down that road. But doesn't take anything away from his brilliant performance this weekend. He was outstanding and, and you know he did what he needed to do to win. But the whole talk about Dovi is back. I let's let's pump the brakes. He's sixty eight points off Marquez for a reason. 
Mm, yeah, I think I, I I agree with you to a point. I think I think it was a key a key moment for Ducati though uh, last weekend mm. to um, just in terms of the balance of power within that team because of course we know that Jorge Lorenzo is out of there and off to Honda to join Mark Marquez next year. Um, so I think whilst of course Ducati would not admit publicly to having a preference of which of their riders wins on any given weekend. I dare say the likes of Davide Tadotzi and Gigi Deligna will have been quietly to themselves having a little bit of a smile to see Davizioso beat Lorenzo in a straight fight at Bruno to win Oh, it. God, yeah. Um, because it, because the... it, it just it kind of reinforces to them that we did still, although he's made mistakes, we have still, in our heart of hearts, we did make the right call by backing Dovi for the future. Absolutely, and don't, don't, don't get it twisted. They absolutely adored the fact that it was Dovi that had won and not Lorenzo. Now, like... The, um, the the large chance of Dovi, you could hear yeah. it out of the Ducati garage. Um, but this was even before Park Ferme. You could hear them shout, Dovi, Dovi. Like, this is not the first time that's happened. And tr- I said it on Twitter as well. There's only one man that runs that team, and his name is Andrea Levizioso. He is the guy in that team. He is the guy that gave that Ducati factory hope last year and not Jorge Lorenzo. I guarantee you the reaction would probably not have been the same if Jorge Lorenzo, who in all fairness to him has been a lot more rational and a lot more quiet and got on with it this season as a professional, as opposed to the complaints of and the team orders shenanigans of last year. It, it's still Dovi's team. It, well, I think it will always be Dovi's team as long as he's there. And I don't, I don't see him going anywhere else for his career, really. He's, he's he, like, this is his sixth season with that team now. And, He's, he's that that team is his. As mm. far as I'm concerned, that's his team, and the the team adores him. Trust me, it is passion. It is the it is the old school Italian passion stereotype to a T. They love him there. That that is not going to change anytime soon. Mm. And he is still just as hardworking as he always has been for that team, Absolutely. which is a large part of why he's so adored. And I think it's I think it is key. I think like I said, you're right in terms of he's. He's not quite back at that 2017 level completely just yet, um, but I, I still I still go back to, um, I mean go back to when he took that last pole position in MotoGP, which was on the Saturday of the Sepang weekend 2016. To that point in MotoGP, and we're only going back just you know just short of two years, 22 months. At that point, he had had what seven years in MotoGP, and he'd won once. Um, and and yep. it, it's still, it, we still have to sort of take stock at times and remember how far he has come from that point, um, where he is, he is no longer just the 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 guy that we're happy to see get one victory, um, because they're so infrequent. Um, and it, and it's clear to me from what we saw, we saw it to a point in Assen where he was clearly the stronger Ducati rider there, um, and we saw it much more clearly at Bruno in that the the step up that Davizioso made in just about every facet of his riding last year. That mm-hmm. that level of quality is still there with Dovi, but he's just added mistakes Absolutely. to it this year. Um, and obviously, if he can cut out the mistakes, then he is back at that level of 2017, which is the, the question I suppose he's got to answer in the second half of this year um, and into next year, where, of course, he'll be expected to lead Ducati's title challenge with Danilo Petrucci as his teammate. Um, as far mm-hmm. as his teammate at the moment goes, Dre, uh, Jorge Lorenzo, in many ways, he made the race happen in the second half of the race with the with the aggression that he showed. It's very rare that we look back on a MotoGP GP race and we say that the guy that clearly displayed the most aggression and really made the race the spectacle that it was, was Jorge Lorenzo. Yeah, Jorge Lorenzo was the guy that was getting into the punch-ups, which is very unlike Normally, the guy that will get to the front, he'll set the metronome going and off he goes. You can't beat him after that. And 
it's almost like the two Ducati guys are kind of role reversed for this race. Dovi was the one who was at the front controlling the race, and Lorenzo was trying to get to second. And yeah, it, it paid off in the end. He very nearly won the race against at the fastest lap of the race on the final lap. He tried everything, including that audacious a double overtake round yeah. the final round the final chicanery goes down the inside of Marquez on one, swings it all the way around the outside, and then tries to take Dovi on the inside. He obviously he goes a bit wide and he can't make the second pass stick, but he's able to pass Marquez into second. And yeah, like Marquez and Lorenzo had a very good fight for um for, for the win of that race. Um a bunch of audacious overtakes in there as well. Lorenzo was the was the entertaining factor in the front three on that one between him, Marquez, and, and Dovi. And Marquez tried to come back on the final lap, but I think once Lorenzo had passed him at turn two, he himself had admitted championship. Think of the championship. You can afford to let both Ducatis finish in front of you. Take the third, take the 16 points, come back and fight them again in Austria. Mm. Um, because Marquez himself, after the race, admitted he didn't want to do anything silly after Lorenzo had passed him at turn at turn three. Um, he, he, his, 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 mentally, I think he, he checked out after that one. He was like, you know what, I'm just going to take this third. It's not worth it. Um, but yeah, Lorenzo was was the entertaining one here. A lot of aggressive moves, and he, he it showed on TV. He really, he, he really did try on this one. Yeah, you've kind of answered the next question already about Marquez, but I'll ask it anyway. Let's talk about the championship leader. Um, and he's extended his championship lead to, what is it, 49 points now yep. um, over Valentino Rossi. So he's essentially two races clear. Make that, well, essentially three with the uh, wins that he's had this season to Valentino Rossi's zero. Um, and, and you're right, he's in that position now that he was in in 2016, which is a, a kind of a dangerous position for the rest where um, he could afford to just dial it back a little bit and you know that risk of crashing which you always kind of think is there about Marquez isn't really there as much anymore um when he's able to ride at this kind of pace and at this kind of uh level of caution um and he I mean he's in such a strong position I mean he's very very keen clearly to show Valentino Rossi and Yamaha a, a level of respect in that I don't think any of us necessarily are taking Rossi and Yamaha seriously as potential world champions, even though they are second in the championship and quite comfortably second in the championship at the moment. Um, and the nearest challenger to Mark Marquez, we're talking about Mark Marquez as having a 49-point lead, but we're talking about him having a 49-point lead over a guy that hasn't won a race all year and has only led four racing laps all season um, in Valentino Rossi. Um, mm -hmm. But Mark Marquez is clearly trying to pay him that respect. And, and I guess when you're Mark Marquez and you're playing that championship mode, Knowing that the guy that is your nearest championship contender in terms of points is behind you in fourth, or he was fifth until the final corner, Mark Marquez mm. is in that position where, knowing that the Ducatis are way too far back, he can afford to bank a third and take it cautious. Exactly. Um, right now, Valentino is the threat because Valentino is not making errors. That's been the one rolling observation besides Marquez's brilliance in the first half of the season has been Valentino Rossi, despite not winning, he's been the most integral, consistent force of just all the main contenders. Points. Exactly, just racking the points up while all the other big hitters around him have made critical errors at some point during the season. Dovi, Lorenzo, Zarco, you know, any, any other semi-consistent guys with Maverick Vinales, but he's been down the order compared to his teammate all the way through. So, Nobody else has really been a, has really come through as, as the threat besides Valentino, but he doesn't have the wins in his arsenal anymore that Yamaha were capable of last year, where 
you know, Rossi could win three or four rounds and be a title contender by default, like he was when he bought when he battled Lorenzo. When he battled Lorenzo in 2015, um, he only won four races to Lorenzo seven, but Rossi led the championship in 16 out of the 18 rounds. So that's what Rossi's good at. He's the stat sheet stuffer. He's, he's he's going to score top fives every single time. When you contrast that to Marquez, Marquez is not having bad races anymore. Like Marquez, I think the inherent fear of Marquez going too hard and binning it isn't there anymore. He's a different rider from the guy who had six DNF and six crashes a couple of years ago. Like Marquez has adapted his style now where he knows where the line is. He's not even crashing in practice so much anymore. It's kind of crazy that he's dialed it right he down. He crash all weekend, did he, at Bruno? No, he didn't. No, he, not one. He he was clean the whole weekend. Um, he, I think he's now just taken a much, a much more disciplined and well-measured approach to race weekends now, rather than this whole idea of trying to find where the line is. He's now, you know what? Let's let's put this in race trim. Let's focus on Sunday. That's what Valentino Rossi's been doing so well over the years. Maybe sacrificing a little bit of qualifying speed to to you know to focus on Sunday. He's not having bad races anymore. This is a race where he was three temps off the victory. And he finished in third. It's one of those things where knowing that the Ducatis are not a direct threat at the moment, Dovi, even with the win, he's only lost nine points to Dovi and he's still 68 back. That's plenty in hand. So he can he can afford to let Dovi win. As long as he's in the mix and finishing second and third, Dovi's not going to win the title, taking five points around Alamarquez. Mm. Or in this case, maybe nine points around Alamarquez. So yeah, he's a different rider than he was a couple of years ago. He, he's not taking the same liberties he was two years ago and that's made him a more well-measured rider and of course when Marquez can sniff a chance at a win he will take it and he probably will and that's why he's got the 50 point lead in the championship that he has right now mm. and it's interesting so I was thinking to myself as you were talking there I was thinking well if we get a repeat of last year's scenario this Sunday at Spielberg in Austria at the Red Bull ring and Davizioso is leading Mark Marquez going to the final corner with nothing between them and I was thinking to myself would Mark Marquez make that same move again knowing the championship is at its current position. Because, of course, take, take ourselves back to last year, and he was probably of the mindset of, well, I can't really afford to just follow Dovi home because Dovi's my immediate threat. I kind of I don't I don't want to let him get five points on me. I want to try and beat him. Right. Um, but, I mean, being Matt Marquez, he probably would still try it um, because that's, yeah. what he, that's, that's who he is. It's, it, and it, it's his very core. He's a racer, and he'll try and win if there's a chance to do so. But the point is, this year, he doesn't necessarily have to. I mean, he could afford if he wants, because Ducati are going to be so hard to beat this weekend in Austria for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, they've won both of the races we've had since we've returned there. Of course, it was a 1-2 the first time um, back in 2016 um, when Marc Marquez uh, finished down in fifth that day. Um, and he's in a position now where... If Ducati are going to be winning or going to be the immediate threat in races, he can afford to follow them home if he has to and make sure he just he beats Valentino Rossi because he's the immediate title threat um, or he's the, the immediate challenger in terms of points at least. Um, and Mark Marquez is in such a strong position with nine races to go. He is now in the position, um, it's usually sort of a point where we mark it down. He is now in a position where even if, and it is the biggest of ifs given the form so far, even if Valentino Rossi wins each of the nine remaining races, Matt Marquez can still win the championship if he finishes second to him in all of them. Um, so he's yeah. now more than uh, he's he's now past the threshold of, of um, being able to. You know, Valentino Rossi can win every race essentially for the rest of the season and still not win the title, um, which is a very unlikely scenario given that he's not won at all to this point. Um, mm-hmm. 
But he does still deserve a lot of credit for the season he's putting together. Dre's kind of alluded to it already, but Valentino Rossi has been in the top five at every single race this year, with the exception of Argentina, which, of course, was Marquez-assisted um, at the end of that mm-hmm. race uh, with what happened. But he has been second, third, fourth, or fifth in every single race since then. Um, and, of course, he was third in the round before it in Qatar. Um, and we've, we've said it before, Dre, haven't we, that the outright blistering pace that perhaps Valentino Rossi may have had in his pomp clearly isn't there anymore um and it's understandable he's 39 um but the final corner of the race at Bruno um <laughs> where he was running fifth and caught Cal Crutchlow napping into that final right hander onto the home straight and beat him to the finish line by half a tenth to finish fourth just shows that even if the outright pace isn't there his brain is still fully engaged before just about anybody else's and certainly before Cal Crutchlow's He's still a genius. Like, like that, that's just what Valentino Rossi is about. He, like no one else is, is that plugged in in terms of a race. Like he's he, he he doesn't take a lap off. He's always plugged in in case something happens. And yeah, he saw a chance to nab Crutchlow on the final corner and he took it. Again, massive roar out of the home grandstand yeah. after that one. Um, to and this was for fourth place. What well, they were not a spot on the podium, not for the win, but for fourth, and they were still losing their minds at, at getting to see a last lap Rossi overtaking the flesh. Um, but yeah, absolutely right. Like, like the rider's brain is still very much alive and well for Valentino. You know, he's still as plugged in as ever, and that was a magnificent uh last corner overtake on Cal Crutchlow to steal fourth place. And hey, another two championship points, which. You know, every point counts in a championship fight. So, you know, if he can get it where he can get it, he'll take it. And that was a fantastic overtake. And yeah, just just a nouse on Valentino is still as as good as ever, even at the age of thirty nine. It's, it's it's incredible how how he's, he's still so switched on and is still not taking any races off. And it's pretty clear at the moment, at least, that the the story for the second half of the season as well as when Mark Marquez wins the title, which it looks like he will, is is who's going to finish second to Marquez in the championship. And, and Valentino Rossi, whilst he's clearly not giving up on the title, because he's not, because of who he is, he's never going to give up until it's mathematically impossible, even though he hasn't won a race this season. Of course, he'll still believe in his heart of hearts that he can still win the championship somehow. Um, but, he, but he said to MCN after the race on Sunday, he said, it was a good day for me because I increased the advantage of Maverick and Zarco in the championship, referring to the fight for second. Um, but he says it now looks like the bigger problem for second place might be Dovi and Lorenzo. He says, we're here to try and win the championship, so for sure we won't give up until the end of the final race. But with Mark and the Honda doing so well, it will be difficult. And he also references the fact that at a circuit around Bruno, uh, when he was directly racing against Hondas and Ducatis, he was the only Yamaha um, or the only rider on any other make of bike besides Honda and Ducati up the front last weekend, um, that it kind of exactly. exposed. It exposed where that Yamaha is still much weaker, where he says... Um, it was an important race because I got to follow Marquez, Davizioso, Lorenzo, and Crutchlow, um, two Hondas and two Ducatis, of course. Um, but that only confirmed things I already know about our bike. When they open the throttle, they can accelerate in a better way and save the tire more. Um, and he essentially hits on where that Yamaha is still much weaker um, than its two immediate rivals. And we'll talk about Valentino Rossi's teammate, who's having his own problems, um, in just a moment. One of the line on Valentino, he did pass 6,000 career points. Um, last weekend, which is absolutely ludicrous um, with his fourth place. Um, So let's talk about two other Yamaha riders. And before we talk about Valentino Rossi's teammate, let's talk about Joan Zarco, who we haven't really spoken about since Le Mans, um, which is really um, emblematic, Dre, of what kind of season he's had Ah. since then. Um, I mean, he finished seventh last weekend behind uh, Cal Crutchlow, who we've already mentioned who finished fifth, and Daniel Petrucci, who 
had a bit of a quiet anonymous race to sixth um, on the mm. Pramac Ducati. Um, but Jean Zarco was next up in seventh. And I don't know whether it was a, a hangover from what happened to him at Le Mans where he crashed out of a race that he genuinely thought he had a chance of winning. Um, but he hasn't been in the top six since then. Um, and granted, he wasn't in the top six at the Czech Republic either, but he was fastest in free practice one. He was towards the front in qualifying, and he was genuinely able to keep up with that leading group for a lot of the race. And he used the phrase, I'm paraphrasing it, but he said he doesn't feel like he's riding to the shops to get some bread anymore. Um, right. And it has to be said, Dre, it was the best Zarko has looked since Le Mans, but it is strange how his season has kind of plateaued since then. Yeah, apparently a lot of internal disputes over his uh, his mentor and coach. And on top of that, apparently he's got a girlfriend now back in France. So, you know, he's been a bit distracted with that. It looks like it's been a lot of... looks like a lot of it has been off-track distractions that have uh, caused, like, some of the bad run of form of Johan Zarco since, since that unfortunate crash at Le Mans where he was, you know, a legitimate contender for the win. Um since then it's uh, been a bit dodgy um, to say the least um but yeah this was a nice return to zarko for something like his best um for sure and uh yeah i mean it, it, this is still not the zarko that we we know he's capable of we we know he can challenge for wins he knows he's been he's been really close to contending on numerous occasions where that's concerned but it's a step in the right direction and yeah, it's not quite the same with Zarko up the front. It's a lot. It's a bit more fun when he's up there, and he's he's trying a lot of things. I don't. I don't think Tech Three are getting the support from Yamaha so much anymore as, yeah. as well. Now they're now they're going to KTM. It's in their best interest for Yamaha not to give Tech Three that support because you know, of course, why would you when they're going to KTM and you, you don't want to be giving a rival team insider information by giving them more upgrades? So. I think Tech Free is naturally going to fall behind a little bit because of their current political climate. But Zarko's doing the best he can, and you know that that was a better performance from Johan. And, and you know, I hope there's I hope there's a sign of more to come because it, it's better up the front when then he's up there for sure. Yeah, exactly. And it kind of just illustrates how far he's fallen. When I look back at the mm. championship standings after after Hareth, which was the last race before his. Uh, crash at Le Mans and his, his subsequent dip in form. He was only, he was second in the championship at that point. He was only 12 points behind Matt Marquez um, after Jerez earlier in the season. And he's obviously fallen a long way back since then. I mean, he was never going to keep up with Matt Marquez in championship terms anyway, but he's now sixth uh-huh. overall. And he's he's way out of contention now to even finish second overall. He's now just ahead of Petrucci and Crutchlow and Iannone, who are all within range of him, down to ninth in the championship. Um, his problems, though, although he's behind uh, this guy in the championship, kind of pale in comparison to Maverick Vinales at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. We've discussed in, in recent shows, the headline in MCN um, on the uh, full-page spread surrounding his weekend reads Vinales' meltdown, um, which um, doesn't give you a great impression of how his weekend went. Um, but <sighs> let's firstly give you the bare facts. He was knocked out of, of the top 10 in free practice three, which meant he was 11th in free practice, had to go through Q1. He successfully gets to Q1, but only qualifies on the fourth row of the grid once he gets to Q2. Um, mm-hmm. Because he's qualified so badly, he's then taken out at the start of the race. He was involved basically in someone else's accident where Stefan Bradle crashes into turn three, wipes out Bradley Smith and Maverick Vinales um, in one accident. Um, we, of course, had that sort of comical sight in the gravel trap as Vinales turns around, immediately looks at Bradley Smith, who straightway points over to Bradle as if to say, <laughs> hey, it's not, it's not me, no, it. It, was, it was him that knocked you off. Um, but, um, <laughs> but in terms of Maverick's weekend um, it seems a lot more has gone on behind the scenes than what we've seen on track um, there was 
uh, a very public, much publicized falling out with his crew chief, uh, Ramon Ficada, mm-hmm. who is now set to be replaced at the end of the season by Bradley Smith's current crew chief, as it goes, Esteban Garcia. Um, they had made an approach to try and poach uh, Kawasaki and Jonathan Ray's crew chief, Pera Reba. Um, good luck, I would have said, <laughs> on trying to pull that one Ambitious. off. Ambitious. Um, but the communication appears to have completely broken down. I, w- I was going to say there seems to be a bit of a wall in there, but that would be a bit too close to home for Yamaha, wouldn't it? Um, based on the history, based on the history within that team. Um, but when you read the comments from um, Fokada, his soon-to-be former crew chief, um, he says Yamaha communicated it to me a few days ago that he's basically going to be out at the end of the year. Um, of that team but there has not been a single word from the rider I don't know what happened no complaints no bad gestures absolutely nothing at the end everyone here is or tries to be professional we do the job as before because the relationship is the same as before I will try to make a bike to win until my last race but as things stand I'm not sure when that will be um and and, it, and it's clear, and MCN have made this very point, that Fokada is still very much admired by Yamaha because they're looking as if they're trying to position him in their satellite Patronus team next year uh, as Franco Morbidelli's crew chief. And Valentino Rossi is putting some of his own money into making sure that happens, given that he is, mm-hmm. uh, Morbidelli is a VR46-backed rider. Um, and clearly Valentino still heavily respects Fokada. Um, but sometimes it's understated dre how important the relationship between rider and crew chief is it clearly matters hugely um to a rider's success and it's clear that the relationship between maverick and his crew chief is near non-existent yeah apparently it started in, in that same fp3 session that when you know maverick got off the bike after finding out he wasn't going to make q2 um he saw in a session that his clapped. teammate was fastest in yeah, Rossi shooting up to the top right at the last minute. Um, he apparently got off the bike and immediately gave the sarcastic clapping gesture to Ramon Forcada, who was in the back waiting for him as his crew chief. If that doesn't sum it up, well, I don't know what does. I mean, Forcada is, is known for having a fiery personality. He has he has no problem saying what he, how he feels and what he feels like. He's he's one of those, he's one of those guys that has his heart on his sleeve an awful lot. He's passionate. He, he he cares a lot about trying to win. That's what that's what his dedication is all about. And the moment the wind started drying up for Maverick, the, the talk about the cracks between him and Fulcada started to show. It's uh, that's that's how it was, you know. Um, and as as many journalists will tell you, like. <laughs> It, like winning is a is a nice solution to everything. And when Maverick won three of his first five, when he joined the Yamaha team, it looked like everything was rosy. But um, the moment they stopped winning, the crack started to show. Of course, you know that as, as things are, um, and that's when it started. You know the the, the Fukada problems. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's not ideal to say the least. And. Yeah, it looks like there's no relationship there left at all. The fact that, you know, after the Saturday press conference, when it was, they were even thinking about removing Forcada mid-season. That's how bad it had gotten. Like, Maverick had just come out of Lynn Jarvis's office, um, basically, and then was, was then told there'll be no questions about what happened with Forcada. Yeah, and, um, and I have, I have so much sympathy in this as well for Forcada. I mean, and not to say that I don't have sympathy for Maverick, but... 
a rider's crew chief clearly they they feel it every bit as much as the rider does uh, they, they, they are one and one and the same they are a team essentially the two of them and it's it's arguably the most important relationship of any two people in in the garage between rider and crew chief because you know they need to be able to understand each other and able to, able to when the rider says something to the crew chief the crew chief needs to know exactly what that means for the bike and able to act accordingly um, and the rider must know how to give the right feedback and that they're both on the same wavelength and mm-hmm. the crew chiefs feel this badly and unfortunately uh, for Focada, although it seems as if he's still going to be positioned within the Yamaha company um, in another capacity with another team but if if the rider is struggling and the rider crew chief relationship has broken down and a change needs to be made it's not going to be the rider that's turfed out it's going to be the crew chief isn't it they're not going to they're not going to boot Maverick out mid-season and replace him with someone else, they're going to replace the crew chief and they're going to bring in for next year Bradley Smith's crew chief Esteban Garcia to replace him and try and repair the damage. Um, But it kind of touches on another problem that Simon Patterson's referenced in MCN this week and he references the most high-profile issue that Maverick Vinales has had in a negative sense in his career, which was in Sepang in 2012 in Moto3 when he went home from the weekend on the Friday um, because of his issues with the team and the fact that the bike wasn't as competitive as, as he'd liked and as reliable as he'd liked. Um, and he went home. And it was it was feared at that point that he damaged his career prospects for the future and that many teams would not look at him at all for the future in terms of signing him because of how unprofessional he was at the time. Um, now, we're not going to say that Maverick Vinales has been necessarily unprofessional at this point because every rider um, will have their moments where they perhaps lose their temper or lose their composure and have, have strops. It happens. They're, they're highly mm-hmm. strong, highly emotional, highly paid sportsmen. Um, but Simon Patterson makes a point that Maverick Vinales, as a young rider, as a kid growing up, was developing a reputation for being hard to work with. Is there a danger at the moment, Dre, that that reputation is going to return and it's going to damage any hopes Maverick Vinales has of ultimately winning a Grand Prix World Championship at the highest level? Well, if you're trying to win a world championship, I'd say pretty high on the list of things I wouldn't want to do would be fall out with the man responsible for trying to make your bike faster. Mm. That probably isn't the best way of going about it. And yeah, Simon Patterson made a very fair point. And I don't think it's unfair to mention his Moto3 fallout and the fact he went home. And again, okay, he was 16 back then. Like, like mm. bike and riders he did come and- back to win the title the next year. Yeah, and like I said, athletes in general are not going to be the most mature people. They're highly strung, they're emotional, there's a lot of adrenaline that goes into anything when you're when you're an elite sportsman. Um, not to mention 16. I mean, shit, it's nuts yeah. if barely drops. I mean, he's still only so, 23 you know, now. Yeah, exactly, he's still only 23 now, and as a guy that's almost three years younger than me, um, god damn it, I'm 26 next week, <laughs> good lord help us all. But um, it's one of those things where, yeah, like, he's not going to be the most mature human being in the world. I think that's an unfair expectation to expect out of a 23-year-old. It's, it's, that's just not normal for 23-year-olds. We're going out getting drunk and getting pissed up and basically making bad decisions at 23 hmm. and at 25. But it's one of those things where it's it's not the most ideal work environment, but it is. The, I, think it, I don't think it's an unfair question to ask. Has Maverick got a legitimate maturity problem? Because this has come up several times before. He's lost members out of his close circle on several occasions. And we thought he did his career in inexplicable damage when he walked out of that Sepang weekend when he was 16. So I mean, Yeah, there was talk around that time back in 2012 because he was 
his big issue in 2012 was a bike that he felt was underpowered and wasn't able to match the KTMs. His bike was Honda-powered, and there was talk immediately around that time that Honda were immediately took note of that and put a black mark next to him and said, we are never employing him again. Right. Like, it, it, it doesn't take a lot to burn that bridge. And like, if he burns his bridges saw... with Yamaha, where does he go then? Back to Suzuki, maybe? Who knows? I mean, Suzuki's the team of the future in Rins and, and and Joanne Mir, by the looks of it. But yeah, like like you say, like as Santino Ferrucci proved in Formula 2 earlier this year, it doesn't take much to burn a bridge with a, with a team, and maybe in motorsport in general. I mean, Santino was in the last IndyCar round trying to get a job out there, because I think he knows the odds of him ever racing again in Europe is slim to none. Like Dan Tickton drove off the road on purpose and got banned for two years, and the FIA blocked him from their recent test they had last week. Like people it doesn't have long take... memories. Yeah, pe- like people may- might forgive, but they don't forget. And these little things do crop up when it comes to deciding who, you know, which guy gets employed and which guy doesn't. Those can break a tie in many a case. Those are those are things that people do hold on to and remember. So Maverick's got to be very careful here. Like he's, as as said, he's. It's not the first time he's had a lapse in judgment and a lapse in maturity. And it, he knows it might not be the last. I mean, look at Mark Marquez. He's a guy that had a lot of people who wanted to get him at many points in his career for riding overly aggressive, even as recently as this year. And he's still only twenty five himself. The difference is, I genuinely believe Mark Marquez has learned and taken on board what has happened to him over some of the most aggressive moments of his career, like in 2011, like like when he hit Rattapark Willerot, this season, when he, when, he, when, he, when he took out Valentino, moments in the past, like the Sepang incident, where he handled that better than I thought any 23-year-old should have at the, at the time. Um, so the difference is, like, Marquez has learned from his previous discretions and I think has come out of it more mature as a result. And I can't I can't really say anything bad about Marquez as a personality and as a human being. Like, that's what I believe character judgment comes from. Like, with Marquez, you're more willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because he's genuinely learned from his mistakes. Maverick, it keeps cropping up. And this run of form that Maverick has been on has been bad. It has been... Like, it has been dreadful. And now he's pissing off the wrong people because Ramon Foucault has been in that has been in that Yamaha paddock and has been in the paddock in general for the best part of 30 years. He started back in 1989. Next year will be his 30th year in the paddock working on bikes. Like, I get it. The rider's never going to take the brunt of it because he's the rider. It's a bit like football. The easy thing to do is sack the manager rather than look maybe a bit more internally as to where the clubs have problems. Manchester United, I'm looking at you. But um, it's, it, it can it can crop up in other areas like this. Like in, in the case of Yamaha, Fakal is going to get paid. He's got another job coming, clearly, no matter what happens. Valentino Rossi is putting his own money in to make sure that his protege gets the best possible treatment. Maverick doesn't have that luxury, and he needs to be very careful where he treads in future, and from mm. where I'm sitting. Yeah, and, and the key difference as well between um, Vinales and Marquez is that for all Mark Marquez's mistakes that he made, none of those were internal team matters. Um, I mean, there was there was that one perhaps sort of slight disagreement they had at Phillip Island when he got disqualified, where the team miscalculated which lap he was going to come in on. Um, but that never mm-hmm. led to a giant bust-up within the team where rider and team mechanics or team bosses were falling out. 
Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of Maverick Vinales' mistakes seem to be um, in terms of internal team politics. Um, and, and yeah, he's he doesn't seem to be learning from those errors, unfortunately. Um, and, yeah, it, it is in danger of putting his career prospects at risk, and, and not in terms of him finding a ride in most GP because his talent will dictate that someone will always sign him. Um, but if he wants mm-hmm. to win a world championship... Um, he is putting those aspirations uh, at risk. Um, let's take you through the MotoGP result then. Uh, Davizioso, the winner for the first time since Qatar, second winner of the year, and the second Ducati won two of the year ahead of Lorenzo in second. Mark Marquez third with Valentino Rossi fourth. Cal uh, Crutchlow took fifth, uh, Petrucci sixth, Zarco seventh, Danny Pedrosa in his final Czech Grand Prix uh, in eighth. He was fastest on Friday. Uh, Alvaro Bautista ninth, and Andrea Iannone won the Battle of the Suzukis for tenth with Rins 11th. Um, that's about as good as it got for them last weekend. Jack Miller was 12th, Franco Momodelli 13th, Hafish Sayarin, who was 4th quickest on Friday and looked very good, um, was 14th, and Alicia Spargro took the final point for Aprilia. Championship standings then look like this. Mark Marquez leads it. His lead is now up to 49 points over Valentino Rossi in second place. Andrea Vizioso has jumped up to third on 113 points, with Vinales dropping to fourth. Lorenzo is up to fifth on 105, with Zarco dropping to sixth on 97. Petrucci is seventh on 94. Crutchlow eighth on 90. Yanone ninth on 81. And Jack Miller is tenth on 61. Into Moto 2 next. Um, and a brilliant, brilliant Moto 2 race, which isn't something we can always say. Um, and I'd imagine, Dre, the largely Rossi back or Rossi backing fans in your suite were no doubt cheering on his young half brother, uh, Luca Marini, mm-hmm. um, over oh, the course yeah. of this Moto 2 race. And, and whilst, again, um, we don't want to try and hark, um, arc everything back to Valentino Rossi. There was an element of poetic, it would have been poetic in a way, and Keith, you referenced this, had Luca Marini, younger half-brother of Valentino Rossi, taking his first career win at the same circuit that Valentino Rossi took his first ever win at Bruneau back course. in 1997. Um, it would have been quite the story. Um, before we talk about Marini, let's talk about the guy who did win the race in the end, Miguel Oliveira, at the end of a brilliant battle with the two Sky VR46 Calexes of Marini and Francesco Bagnaia. Mm-hmm. Um and KTM just going to show Oliveira and KTM just show what happens when you get a good grid slot. Exactly. Miguel started that race from fourth on the grid as opposed to most likely fourteenth the way his Which season's is laid out. Best of the year. Yeah, like KTM are clearly taking a different qualifying. They hit, they hit, they hit the blocks running. To be fair, everybody did. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like. Yeah, Miguel got his best grid slot of the year in fourth, was in the mix right from the get-go, and it showed he didn't have to work as hard as he normally did to get up the field. He was right in contention from the get-go, and it turned into a, a dogfight between him and the two Sky VR46 guys of Banyaya and Marini, and you know, Lorenzo Baldassari joined in a little bit as well to the end. 
But uh, Oliveira, I think the experience of Oliveira compared to the two quite young and still, you know, guys that are only in their second and third seasons in Moto2 in Marini and, and, and Baniaia, I think the extra experience of Oliveira and the extra racecraft that I think he's inherited from his brilliant Moto3 career, I think it definitely shined through on this one. Um, Marini was... You know, watching Marini in his prime reminded me there a lot of Valentino Rossi. Just lots of the late breakers stuff. Incredibly brave riding from Marini all the way through, including that last corner where yeah. he tried to go the long way around on Miguel Oliveira, which I thought was ambitious, but, you know, <laughs> brave, to say the least. Um, but, you know, Miguel made the move in, down the bottom of the hill into turn, not, into turn 10, and it was a brilliant pass and held his nerve up the hill, was not outbroken, and yeah, just got up to the top at the end, did very, very well. It was, an, it was masterful riding from Oliveira to, to, to come on top of that dogfight because Marini was fast all weekend. He was comfortable all weekend. He's ridden just as well as he did in, in, in the Saxon ring, maybe even better, given that he was more than comfortable in leading the race on several occasions, um, especially in this fight. He was, you know, he was more experienced and, you know, all the hype and on, on, on the Banyaya train, given he's got, you know, a Pramac seat going for next year as well and, you know, Marini has, you know, very quietly gone about his business in the last two rounds. He's proven that, hey, he, he, you know, the Saxon ring was no fluke. It was a fantastic fight between all three of them. And, you know, Oliveira's racecraft, again, being absolutely top-notch, was what got him the W on this occasion. Yeah, it was. As you, as you mentioned, it, it did remind us a lot of Moto3 Oliveira in that in a last lap battle, when it comes down to, to tactics and being able to position your bike in the right place and be at the right place at the right time, Oliveira is so good at it. And and I initially thought he'd got it wrong. I thought he'd gone too early when he overtook Marini at the penultimate chicane, the penultimate S-Benz um, down at turns 11 and 12, where he first he tries into turn 10, runs wide, Oliveira, uh, uh, Marini goes back past him. Then he goes up the inside again into 11. And I'm thinking, surely you don't want to be first going up the hill to that final chicane up a horsepower hill. You want to be second. Um, and he basically allowed Marini to dive into his slipstream. But yeah, Marini, Marini was unable to get the move done. Oliveira tried to squeeze him, made him go up the inside. And Oliveira displayed some bravery as well, because of course Marini gets up the inside through the left. And Oliveira is, is smart enough and brave enough to brave it out around the outside, stick on the outside, because he knows that gives him the inside for the right hand of the final corner um, of turn 14. Um, and Marini basically had the option of either tucking behind him and try and beat, the, beat him on the drag race to the line, which is difficult given how short a run it is, or mm-hmm. try and somehow brave it around the outside of the final corner, which he just could not. You could see him just scrabbling for grip um, on the outside of that final corner, and he ended up having to make do um, with second place. Um, and Oliveira takes the championship lead. Oh, just on Marini, though. Um, it, it's amazing, this, this emergence that Marini's had, um, because mm. in the first... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight races of the year. Uh, I mean, this, the last of those was Aston, where he kind of emerged on the on the radar a little bit. But the first seven races of the season, we didn't see him in the top six at all. He only scored points on three of those occasions. Um, I mean, this is a rider who did have his moments last year at the forward team when he kind of outshone Baldessari for a lot of last year. Um, mm-hmm. But he just seems, as we've got into the summer, he seems to have suddenly... A switch has been flipped, and he's suddenly now a genuine top-tier Moto2 runner. That's his third straight front-row star, of course, his first ever pole. And he's now been on the podium in back-to-back races. Yeah, like they're ticking off the firsts quite quickly with Marini on this one now. And yeah, you're absolutely right. The last two or three rounds, he's really 
you know, got himself clued in and is now riding like top rider in the class. It's been, it's, I don't know what's caused it. I don't know if there's been some sort of, of, of crew change in the back or a different approach or something along those lines. I'd love, to, I'd love for people to interview him and see what, see what the deal is and see what's, what's been the curate, the catalyst for this change, because he looks like a different rider compared to, compared to a year ago where he was occasionally in the top 10, but never really looked like a guy that was going to be in the top of the field. And the last two rounds, he's been fantastic. Again, as you say, back-to-back podiums. First pole position this weekend was fast all weekend long um, around Bruno. And again, was very, very close to the first win there. Again, was was unlucky not to win that one. Um, again, just, just a little bit more Nelson Oliveira when it mattered most. But that first win is coming for Marini. Like, he, he is going to get chances if he keeps riding like this. And that first win will absolutely come. I'm dead certain on that. Um so yeah, like I, I don't know exactly what's caused it, but it's great to see. And you know, it looks like another excellent, you know, Sky VR forty six rider has emerged in their growing group of brilliant riders. I mean, David Emmett was said last a couple of weeks back that you know it's it's probably going to be the Italians that are going to take over in terms of where all the young talents going to come from in bike race in the next five years because the amount Valentino Rossi is investing back into young Italian talent is off the charts. Um, you see the ranches, you see the training camps, he's doing talent camps in Asia now as well. Um, it's, 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 it's adding up. It's definitely adding up and it, it shows. And Marini is another walking example of that. You're going to have two of their academy in MotoGP next year. And Marini could very easily be next in line. Mm, absolutely. He's having a, a brilliant, brilliant emergence this season. Um, in Moto2. Let's talk about his teammate then who finished third, uh, Francesco Bagnaia. And he's, he's lost the championship lead, Dre, but it's not exactly like he had a bad weekend at Bruno. He finished third, mm-hmm. but he's now two points behind Miguel Oliveira um, in the championship. And it's... I just wonder with Bagnaia, he, again, he's not done an awful lot wrong. I mean, hell, the, the 12th place he got at the Saxon Ring was actually quite a good result given that he got knocked off early on um, or he had to go off the track with Pacini fell off in front of him, which was no by no means at all Bagnaia's fault. But... Right. Uh, Banyaya and SkyVR46 in danger of ruining the fact that they perhaps not put Oliveira and KTM away in a season really where they've essentially been having the best part of a 10 grid slot head start on them most weekends. Yeah, it looks like. I mean, I think that's more because than Oliveira. This was the time last year where Oliveira and KTM mm. really suddenly clicked and got going. Yeah, like it was around Aragon sort of time where Oliveira found another gear, very nearly won won the final three to really send a message to the field that KTM had arrived at the end of last season. You know, Oliveira was, was very good the first half of the year, but he was excellent in the second half. And if that if that trend continues, then Banyai could be in trouble. Um the way the way the season could close out and Oliveira could be going could be going to MotoGP as the series champion, um, the way it's going, because yeah, like I don't know if KTM's found something overall. We'll have to wait and see. But the way it's going, like Oliveira is strong right now, and he looks like a stronger rider than Banyaya lost out on a critical dogfight. He didn't get the chance to ride that Lorenzo style race. He's very good at when he when he comes out from the front, takes control of a race, and then he's unbeatable. He's like when he's caught in a dogfight, he's not winning those races. He's coming out on the losing side of it. And Oliveira is known for having brilliant racecraft, and. Yeah, like I think that could be a problem. Like I don't think it's all on Banyaya. I think certainly a lot of that as well is down to how well Oliveira comes through a field on Sunday, despite the bad grid slots. But if they keep, if if Miguel can start on the front two rows, he's going to be challenging for 
most likely. Um, so, yeah, like, I think there's a lot of different factors at play here, but I think Vanier could be starting to rue incidents like the Saxon ring. Again, wasn't his fault, but he, he lost a bucket load of points to Miguel Oliveira, and now Miguel's leading the championship for the first time this season. And Austria's coming up next, which is KTM's home round. They're going to be well up for this one. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of pressure on Banyari to get again to find some steal another victory because the way it's going, Oliveira's the hot hand at the moment. Mm, he is, and there's only two points between them at the moment. So let's hope it does go all the way to the end of the season. It's the MotoGP looks like it's not going to, but in Moto Two we have just two points separating the top two of the championship, and in Moto Three. Um, it's only three points. Um, so, so, so let's see. Let's hope it goes all the way to the to the final round in Valencia. But it does look, uh, and it's one other rider that we'll touch on briefly in Moto Two. And um, I, I, I kind of feel a little bit bad for doing it, but we kind of have to mention Alex Marquez um, because it looks like oh, it's dear. going to be a you know a two horse race for the championship now between Oliveira and Banyaya, with Marquez, the man who was third in the championship and still is, um, losing a handful of points. He's now fifty three back in third position, um, and it was noticeable. During the commentary, which again, um, I know, Joy, you haven't heard because you, you, were, you were there trackside, but Keith Hewan was already saying before Marquez fell off that this is a rider who just seems, for a rider of his experience in this class, still makes too many mistakes. And then he goes and mm. crashes and makes another one. Um, and, and to quote exactly what you put on Twitter when he crashed on Sunday, Alex Marquez is never going to be the guy we want him to be, is he? And... <laughs> I don't know whether that's something that's just occurred to, to you or occurred to anyone just this weekend or whether it's always been a feeling that we've had with Alex Marquez, but the race at Bruno just kind of crystallized it, didn't it? It did. I mean, this is we're now halfway through Marquez's fourth season in Moto2, and he's got another extension this year. He's got a very fast teammate again next year, which could be a problem. Um, more on that a little bit later on in the show. It's been his problem for the last two years. Yeah, jeez, there's no, there's no getting around it. Alex, no, it just doesn't seem like he's quite good enough to, you know, to be the guy. Like, let's be real here. We we want him to be as good as his brother. Mm. We'd love to see. I think we'd all love to see two Marquezes in the top flight, and you know, maybe even what we saw in testing a few years back when there was two Marquezes in the same team, both driving for Repsol Honda. That would be an incredible story. Um, that would be one of motorsports most incredible stories to have two Marquez brothers be world champions and both in the same team but I think Hewan's right I think he is a guy that just makes too many errors and it's a shame because the talent is there it's more than that he's dominated Moto2 races in the past he's got the skill and ability to, to beat anyone he likes on his day but Bruno again was just another one of those narrative sort of moments where it's like, oh no, Alex has made another critical error um, in the middle of a Grand Prix where again he was fighting for the win. He's just gone in too hot on the final corner and he literally crashes right in front of the main grandstand and he could hear the shock of Marquez hitting the canvas on that one. Luckily, he was Toslan, okay. Toslan said as well on commentary, he says, and obviously Toslan knows that circuit very well, he says there are a lot of corners at Bruno that are very easy to crash on. But he said that final corner is very hard to crash on. He says you have to make a pretty big error to crash there. Um, yeah, and 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 that's what Alex Marquez did. And it was a fascinating debate. And I think I think Tozland is brilliant on commentary. I have to say, yeah, um, he really is. Sport. Not just in terms of reading a race, but just his knowledge and, and the way the way he articulates it. And and it was, there, there was there was a very fascinating debate that they had about Alex Marquez mid race during the Moto Two race where. 
and, and this is a point I've made in the past about Romano Fanati in Moto3, where it's like, the best thing for him, I think, is just to get him out of that class and get him up into the next class above so he can just you know, have a change of bike. And he may well prove to be very, very good on a MotoGP bike, but the way rate is going, he's never going to earn the opportunity to prove it. Um, mm. by his performances in Moto2 and, and, and that's kind of the point that Tozan was making he was like I, I kind of want to see him on a MotoGP bike it's time he got on a MotoGP B, GP bike now and he went, referenced the fact that he might still get one with the um, the Avintia team um, in, in MotoGP next year and <laughs> Keith Hewan made the very legitimate point that he said well um, you know why would a team in MotoGP why would they sign Alex um, and and Tozlan will said, well, he's, he's a very Tozlan said, well, he is a very very good young rider. And Keith Ewan immediately said, yeah, but there's loads of those, um, and he and he's right. Um, yeah, and he, and he said that if you're signing Alex Mar- Mar- Alex Marquez, what are you getting? Um, and and Tozlan said, well, you're getting a name, um, as well as the sort of mm. the talent that we think he has. But unfortunately, the name isn't going to be enough for Alex. Um, and you know he, he's. Let's not get this twisted. We're not we're not criticizing what he's achieved. He's had a terrific career, even if he retires now. He's what a world champion. He's, had? he's a Moto three world champion. Um, but but as as Dre rightly says, we're, we're often looking at Alex Marquez through the eyes of he's Mark Marquez's brother, so we want him to be what Mark Marquez is. Um, yeah. it, it's the, it's the Ralph Schumacher syndrome, and mm. it's not and it's not Alex Marquez's fault. Um, it's un, it's unfair because you, you you compared him to one of the greatest. Scene and exactly, and it, and he's and it, it, you know, for, for any rider of any measure to be third in the Moto Two World Championship, um, he, that that's not exactly a bad season he's having. Um, but no. if, but for for a rider who and he himself will surely have desires of, of of being a most GP rider himself in the future, but it just looks as if that he's never quite going to be that good um, to be a Moto GP rider. And mm. I dare say, I dare say, Dre, if you put him on a Moto GP bike. He may well be capable of the kind of results we've seen from the likes of Zarco and of Folger um, in recent years, but the chances are we're never going to find out um, because, unfortunately, you have to reach a certain level on a Moto2 bike to justify that promotion. Um, yeah, uh, and I'm not sure Alex Marquez um, will ever quite reach that level. Uh, I mean, you want my two cents on this? Go I on. mean, I, again, because I think it's like I've not, I've not seen the races on TV since got back and that seems like i might have to go out of my way to see because that seems like a very interesting debate because i completely agree i think tozan's the best in the business right now i think he's fantastic he, he really does his homework and the way he articulates that in the middle of a live broadcast and on commentary is very impressive i think tozan's fantastic um so when he talks uh, i listen um and yeah a very intriguing debate and i think is i think they're both right i think like, i don't think there's a wrong answer i think the trend of Moto2 and the, and the way this rookie class has performed in MotoGP, the rookies in general have been pretty good this year. And especially because it's, it's from riders who you probably didn't think was going to hit the ground running as well as they have. I think the only really disappointing Siren. rookie, you know, like, you know, like who thought Hafiz Siren would be top rookie halfway through the season? Yeah. Anyone? Anyone at all? Put your hand down. You're a liar. Um, like you know, like Frankie Morbidelli's had good races. Hafiz Iron has been fantastic, given the fact he had even less time to get used to the sport compared to all the other rookies. Thomas Luti, I think, has only been the has been the only slightly disappointing rookie. And even then, a lot of that is down to the fact he, he started the off season with a broken ankle and missed a critical test. Um, he's always been playing catch up, Luti, and you know the. The rookies have been impressive because there were riders that didn't have the greatest of reputations in Moto2, but with a new bike and a new outlook, performed well. Takanaka Gami, 
and Hafiz Siren are probably the two biggest walking examples of that going into this season. And I don't think there's any like did it again. I could go back another year. Look at Jonas Volga. Did Volga? Did anybody think Volga was going to be that good as a rookie? Given his Moto Two career was one where he had legitimate concerns about, you know, how fast he could be. Given his Moto Two career was often inconsistent. You know, he would win it. It was a win it or bin it sort of rider, and then he had to, a, a couple of very good performances in Tech Three. Was and if anything, was kind of overshadowed by how great Zarco's rookie year was. It could be the same deal with someone like Alex Marquez. I think, I think Tozland is right. I think you probably would be doing a bit better now being on a MotoGP bike. Because I mean, how much do you expect Marquez to really improve on that 600cc yeah. MotoGP? What is there left for him to learn in Moto2? Like this is his fourth season. He's not going to get any better. And it, and you know what? Triumph coming in next year is going to push the reset button and everything anyway. It's. I think it's at this point. It's almost pointless keeping Marquez around. Now, I, I think a lot of that is of well is unfortunately also down to the fact that VDS don't have their grid slots anymore in MotoGP, and they're effectively downsizing by just having a Moto Two and Three team next year, which is a shame because I think I'm sure Marquez he probably would have been next in line. Yeah, I think Marquez would have been next in line if they knew how their results were. Unfortunately, they were owned by Marco Bartolomé, and we all know how well that situation broke up with Mark VDS. But, you know, I think Marquez is caught between, caught between a rock and a hard place. He's not going to get any better in two. He knows the bike. He knows the team. He knows the structure. He's not going to get any better in there. He's probably better off just being in MotoGP. But as you say, the, the results are kind of making it hard to justify putting him in MotoGP because there's more exciting talents around him. I mean, if you had a choice right now, would you be signing Alex Marquez or Lorenzo Baldassari? You're probably signing Baldassari the way the season's playing out so far. Banyaya is walking into, you know, a, a really good Pramac team next year on a GPA team. And you've got another walking example. Miguel Oliveira is going to Tech 3. He's already got his future confirmed. He's going to be spearheading the young rider team of Tech 3 next year. And Joanne Mears walking into a factory seat next year at Suzuki. So his own teammate who's been in the class for, what, eight races before? How many got the Suzuki deal announced? Like, Alex Marquez is, like, almost old news now. And, and Tozlan's right. He's almost he, the new Thomas Lutie. I, I didn't want to say that. But, yeah, that's all I was thinking. I don't want him to be the next gatekeeper. Because um, that's what he feels like at the moment. Is he feels like he's he's a really solid all round rider. Who yeah, can it almost win feels races. like if you're better than Alex Marquez, you're going places. Yeah, exactly. He feels like a, a great gatekeeper guy, but not a guy that's going to win a title, which is a shame because he's a great he's a great talent. And I think because of his surname and because of the brand and because of what comes with him, I think people want him to succeed. But it's just not coming together for him at the moment. Mm. We will follow his his remainder of this season with interest. He, as I say, he looks like he's out of championship contention now. Um, let's quickly give you the Moto Two result then, because we need to get Moto Three in. Oliveira, the winner from Marini and Bagnaia, um, Baldazari in fourth, Vieje fifth, uh, Brad Binder, the Saxa Ring winner, of course, sixth, ahead of Marcel Schrotter and Jorge Navarro. He's another rider on the move for next year, as we'll tell you shortly. Sam Lowe's, who qualified terribly but raced brilliantly, finished ninth, um, ahead of Mattia Pasini, who qualified on the front row but faded to 10th. And the rest of the points were handed out to Fabio Quattararo uh, on the speed-up. Augusto Fernandez, who's stepped in for Hector Barbara at the Pons team, he's actually doing very well um, since he ah. stepped in. He's been in the points in the last couple of rounds. 12th for him, Ico Lacroix on 13th, Andrea Locatelli 14th, and Simone Corsi took the final World Championship point. 
championship standings then, it's a change at the top with Oliveira leading Banyaya by two. Uh, Alex Marquez stays third, but he's now 53 off the pace and only seven ahead of Baldazari, who has jumped up to fourth. Um, he and Binder both climb a place. Binder's up to fifth with John Mir, who crashed on the first lap, dropping to sixth. Xavi Vieja seventh, Schrotter eighth, Quartararo ninth, and Bataya Pacini stays in the top ten in the points, although he's now only six ahead of the fast-improving Luca Marini. Uh, Moto3 then, um, and I'd love to devote more time to Moto3 because there were a lot of great stories from this, um, mm. but we're, time is against us. But uh, there, there are two riders who I think we were delighted for, Dre, last weekend. First yes. of them, of course, is Jakob Kornfile, um, who was the only rider with his braiding gear, really, at the end of qualifying uh, on the Saturday mm-hmm. um, by getting out for his final run in time to actually beat the Czech flag and start a timed lap, which kind of helps. Um, yeah. But... Um, just tell us from, from trackside just what it was like as a Czech rider took his first ever career pole position after 150-odd starts at his home Grand Prix at the Czech Republic at Brno. Oh, God, the fans went ballistic. Like, like it wasn't so much on the grandstand, but you could hear from the campsites. They were they were making noise in the air. This was a massive deal that Jakob Kornfile, who is every bit as popular as Carol Abraham is in these parts... Cornfile, he obviously went viral earlier in this year with that incredible save he had at Le Mans. So he's already had a bit of hype going into this weekend. The roar was like not so much um, for pole position, but certainly in the main grandstand when he finished in third during the race itself. Roars coming out of the main grandstand. They were delighted for Jakob Cornfile, who was acting like he'd like he'd just won the championship with that podium. Um, you know, stewards coming out, the Czech flag on the back, and, you know, the fans going absolutely crazy for him. Um, it was wonderful to see. It was great to see them get behind their hometown guy. And, uh, yeah, Jakob Cornfile, um, great weekend for him in general, just showing his intelligence and maturity, um, which can often count for a lot in Moto3. And, yeah, Cornfile certainly delivered on that one. But the home crowd going going crazy. Um, no surprises there, but very cool to see in person. They went absolutely nuts. Hmm. Yeah, he did. Uh, a, a great, great result for him. Uh, on the Saturday. Um, and he actually converted that on Sunday. He was in many ways one of the riders who made such a great race happen on the Sunday. He did try the Jorge Martin tactic early on of breaking away at the front, mm. but he just simply didn't have the pace to do it and got reined back in. Uh, and we had a sort of 20 rider leading group, um, which is quite a big group considering the field only has about 27 riders in it, period. Um, but he did get a podium in the end. And um, actually, it surprised me when I've just looked into how many podiums he's actually had. It's his fourth career rostrum. Um, in Moto3. I thought he'd only had a couple before. I knew the one he had at Silverstone in the wet uh, when Danny Kent won. Um, but he, he, he did have one at the final race of that same season. He finished third in Valencia in the same race that Danny Kent won the title. Um, and he was then second in Malaysia in 2016, the race where half the field crashed on oil, but they didn't red flag it. Um, and Colfile mm-hmm. stayed, on, stayed on board and finished second. Um, that was his last podium, Malaysia 2016. And of course, he's now had one um, this year at his home Grand Prix um, in third position. And it, it, there's one other rider, though, that kind of, as, as much as we're happy for Cornfile, there's one other rider that kind of engulfs that, uh, and it's Fabio Di Gianantonio, um, who provided a result that the Grazzini team kind of needed because we recorded this podcast um, last week before Jorge Martin broke his wrist in free practice one. Um, fractured his radius, was out of the rest of the weekend. Um, so Di Gian Antonio was flying solo for the Grassini team. 
Um, and boy, did he deliver for them, Dre. And basically, forget what happened in this race. Forget the circumstances of the 20-odd laps that we had at Bruneau. Given how many near misses he has had, in particular the race that he had cruelly taken from him at Le Mans earlier this year, Fabio mm. Di Gian Antonio deserved a win. He really did. And I, I could even go back to last year, wasn't it? When Mugello last year beaten by like basically the tread of a tyre. And yet he and, still had you know, the uh, the grace to congratulate Mino, who'd beaten him. Yeah, like almost immediately after they crossed the first match, congratulate his fellow. He's a good boy, Digi. And yeah, he's, he's a and he's always been a very good rider who's been capable of, of, of challenging for wins and has been able to do so for a good year and a half now. And it, it, it's been coming for a long, long time. And we, and we talked about it during Le Mans, how he was essentially screwed out of that Le Mans victory by terrible stewarding, in my opinion. He was pushed off the road and was given a three-second time penalty for his trouble, um, which I thought was just awful that he had gotten that sort of treatment um by the stewards and, and you know no nuance was really applied it just you know just looked at the numbers like oh yeah he's free flagged up yeah punish him um but this has been coming for a while and i'm very glad that dg antonio finally got that first win that's been coming for a long time he rode brilliantly it, it was a it was a classic bruno dog fight all the way through um you know a little bit of a break off at the end between three or four guys but uh, DG came out on top in the end, rode magnificently, um, and yeah, just did what he had to do to win. And um, yeah, it was a brilliant performance from DG. And again, long overdue. I'm glad that justice was finally done and Fabio Di Gentile got his first win. Yeah, there was a level, there was a level of aggression from DG in that race that it almost, it almost as if he was of the attitude of, "I'm not going to be the nearly man again this time. Um, this mm -hmm. one is mine." Um, and he was—he put some manners on Canet going into the final um, S-Bends at the end of the final lap as well, just to basically warn him off trying to make an overtake on him um, into the final corner. Um, but with Dijan Antonio winning and Canet taking second, I mean, we'll talk about Bezecchi in a moment. Um, but with those two finishing second and the unfortunate absence of Martin from the Czech Grand Prix, um, we don't know at the time of recording whether he goes on to race in Austria. We know he's been declared fit for pre-practice one, but as you're listening to this, you will know yourselves whether he continued beyond that point in the weekend. We can't tell you at the moment because we're recording this on the Thursday night. Um, but, yeah. if you, but if you go back to the last seven, eight races, Jorge Martin has either taken 25 points from that race or none at all. Um, and that extends to Bruno. He's had a first, a DNF, a DNF, a first, a DNF, two firsts, and then a DNS, a non-start at Bruno. Um, hmm. and, and that has kept the championship close. And, and with Martin's absence, and Bezecchi didn't totally punish him, um, although he did take the championship lead, De Gian Antonio and Canet, by taking 25 and 20 points respectively, remarkably, they're both right back in the chase again. Yeah, and he's only 17 points off the top now, if, I'm, if my, if, yeah, if my math is... only 21 off. Yeah, so again, it's, it's, yeah, it's it's all of a sudden it's 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 back to a, a race of four again. Can it? Who's been very quiet for the last few rounds is is all of a sudden now back in the mix. And uh, yeah, geez, it's it's crazy how a couple of rounds like Martin's inconsistencies and Bezeki has you know made a couple of critical errors in there too, which again is again brought everybody back into play, especially DG, who just looked like he was not going to get that first win. And Canet, again, who hasn't won and has, you know, just been in the mix. And that's been enough. They've all had significant DNFs at some point besides Bezeki, And even he had the big one at Assen. So, 
yeah, it's 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 an open season right now. Nobody looks like they're going to dominate, and Martin could be injured for and hurt for quite some time now because mm-hmm. of you know this this broken wrist. It's the one that's an injury you really don't want as a bike rider. Um, and you know, as mentioned, we're recording this on Thursday night. We don't know how much how much uh, of a role Martin will play in the yeah, weekend. That, that doesn't try. look like the injury that heals in a week to me. No, it doesn't. There was a lot of stitches on that wound. Like, geez, it, it looked like he's going to be in quite a bit of pain after 15 or so racing laps. Like, who knows what's going to happen where that's concerned. But um, from where I'm sitting, uh, I don't think Martin's going to be anywhere near 100% going into this race. But we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I mean, sitting it here, and, and again, we're recording this ahead of the weekend, I'd be amazed if he races. I'll just, I'll just be amazed just on a purely physical level. I mean, amazed and impressed if he does go on to race this weekend because I just don't think he'll be in any way physically fit for it. Um, I mean, he might be of the opinion that given how close this championship looks like being, even if he takes part and rides at 75% of his capacity and just gets some points, that's better than nothing. And he might need those points um, at the end of this season. Um, Given that, you know, had he not had four non-scores as it is this season and you know five races outside the top 10 just a couple of those had been sort of fifth or sixth he'd be way clear by now um in the championship it's been feast or famine for martin this year um and as it is he has lost the championship lead again to marco bezecchi who finished sixth at the weekend and it, it, it it's it probably wouldn't be too unkind to say he had a pretty poor weekend for the most part bezecchi um, never really looked like he had the pace that we've seen from him on just about every round so far this season where he's looked like a podium threat um, oh. and he's been on the podium at most races qualified down in I think it was 14th um, on the Saturday and was riding around that sort of 10th to 13th position for a lot of the race it has to be said but while 6th on the face of it Dre doesn't necessarily look like he's punished Martin to the full and he hasn't the way his race threatened, the way his weekend threatened to go, I think Bezeki deserves a lot of credit for keeping his head, keeping his head down, and making sure he got out of there with some points. And to be fair, he did maximise the points that he could have got, because the highest he was at any stage in that race was where he finished. Exactly. He just he started deep on row five, and he just basically had to pick off, you know, where he could get it, basically. And he did, in all fairness. Like, you can't... Like, sometimes you're not going to win a race. You're just not going to have the pace or you're just not going to have the bike or circumstances are just you know, going to go against you. You're not going to win every single round in Moto3. It's impossible. It's so hard to do because it's so close, especially in Brno, where, you know, a race is going to be such a dogfight. Vazeki picked off his spots where he could. He tried to beat people where they could, and he he kept his head in in all the chaos of that Moto Three race, and literally took home the best possible result he could realistically have. And mm. yeah, that is a that's a champion's ride. You know, you, as as my old cohort Adam Johnson used to say, you don't win a title on your on your good days, you win it on your bad ones. And to come back from there to finish in sixth, especially with Martin, you know, not racing this weekend. It was it was a critical result, and he, he's done well to get that sixth place. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, actually, that, that exact phrase. And, yeah, given given where he was for a lot of that weekend, it was important that he got out of there with some points. And, and yeah, that, that was a rider to me who learned from Assen, who was running around in fourth on the final lap Assen and threw it at the scenery, trying to catch up to the three ahead of him. Um, he wasn't going to do that this time. He was going to make sure that while Martin wasn't there, he got out of Bruno with some points, and he got out of there with 10 points and has turned 
All right, it wasn't the win that perhaps he would have wanted and truly punished Martin. Because, you know, before we try and feel too sorry for Jorge Martin, the injury that he sustained was because he made a mistake in free practice and crashed. Um, mm-hmm. So so that's not that's no one's fault but his own. That's not Pazeki's fault. Um, but he he turned a seven-point deficit into a three-point lead. And who knows, if Martin doesn't go on to race this weekend, he could extend that even more this weekend um, in Austria um, at a circuit that's likely to reward outright horsepower and outright top speed and of course it looks like as we've seen so many occasions that that ktm particularly with bezeki on board is an absolute missile down the straights um so he may well be a key rider to look for this weekend uh in austria um but as it is bezeki retakes the championship lead let's give you the result then from bruno and it was Dejan antonio the first time winner from canet and confile um, Bastianini took fourth ahead of Gabby Rodrigo in fifth Marco Bezzecchi as we mentioned sixth ahead of Marcos Ramirez in seventh Philip Ertl eighth um, he did lead uh, four or five laps from the finish but faded to eighth Albert Arenas who of course like Ertl has won already this year he inherited that controversial win from Di Gian Antonio at Le Mans um, he got his best results since then in ninth with Lorenzo Dalla Porta in tenth position the 15 point scorers which are rounded out by Antonelli Foggia Masaki Suzuki and Arbolino were covered by just 2.7 seconds um over the finish line um Bezzecchi leads leads the championship now by three points from Martin 133 players 130 Di Antonio is third on 116 can it despite finishing second which equals his best result of the year drops a place in the championship he's dropped behind Di Antonio to fourth um but he is now only 21 points off the outright championship lead uh Bastianini who finished fourth he's now just 36 off the lead so he's not exactly out of it himself uh in fifth Cornfile is up to 6th on 77, ahead of Rodrigo on 76, Ramirez on 66, Mino on 60, and Ertl is back into the top 10 on 52. round of course is this weekend in austria and before we move on to the news we have to quickly squeeze in bsb we will would love to devote a bit more time to this but given that we're already <laughs> rapidly closing in on two hours um we better Jesus. we better we better run through this quickly bsb um <laughs> dre you have the winds lol yep I was, <laughs> yeah i was about to say you were of course at bruno while this was happening i was at work but did immediately check twitter to see what had happened in race one and uh, i think we both had the same reaction Jeez, Haslam's even winning at Thruxton now? The one track he's not won on the championship. Uh, uh, shit. It's like, it's like Haslam's winning in Thruxton now. Shut it down. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm going to keep this brief. Race one was interesting. I do genuinely think, though, that Jake Dixon had uh, kind of gift-wrapped him that first race win. Um, block passing him on the complex was not the smartest move from Dixon. It's a long rate to that final chicane. It's very fast. He let Haslam take the inside line. I think that was silly. I think mm. he, he, gift, he gift-wrapped Haslam that first race win um, in race one. And it's a shame because Dixon was riding very well up to that point. I just think tactically he wasn't clued in on that one. You're not going to beat Haslam in a dog by doing that um but yeah Haslam winning in Frux he's, he's, he's leaving every round of win now it's it's very shaky-esque at the moment and I don't mm. think anyone's got an answer for him o- over the course of an entire weekend but uh 
yeah um at least dixon's probably now finally in the showdown as good as in now with the double podium he had this weekend but uh as much as it's nice to see him challenge for wins a bit more frequently in a place named knock hill yeah. um that was a bit silly yeah and, and to be fair to dixon he did kind of put it right in race two by beating haslam in a straight fight on the final lap again in race two but unfortunately mm-hmm. on that one it was for third and fourth not for first and second um i have to say while we're, while we're uh, praising uh, ex-racers who've become brilliant commentators, Shaky Bone was brilliant in the box um, on uh, on Sunday at Thruxton. And I loved, it was one of my favourite commentary lines of last weekend in either series where uh, Haslam takes the lead in race one at, at Thruxton and Shaky straight away says, here comes Captain Sunday, um, referring to Haslam. <laughs> Um, because, <laughs> because he because he really is Captain Sunday. What a brilliant nickname um, for Leona Haslam. Because he was what eighth, I think, on the grid for race one. Um, yeah, he, you know, and at no stage in free practice or qualifying did he look like he had race winning pace. But all of a sudden, race no. one comes along, and there he is, um, takes the race win. Um, I mean, it was it was a it was a race of contrasting fortunes for the two JD Speedfit riders because. Uh, Luke Mossy produced the best example of shooting your bolt too early and going off too quick at the yes. start of a race that we've ever seen. Um, in a race that we know around Thruxton, you need to make sure you have some tyre left at Very the end. Very hard on tyres. Um, yeah. and, and Luke Mossy basically destroyed his in the first two thirds of the race and led it for led it by about three seconds and then ended up finishing way back in eighth uh, by the end of race one because he'd completely ruined mm-hmm. his tyres. Um, Hasden took a full advantage and uh, just to um, echo what Dre said, very curious tactics from jake dixon who i think would admit now that he got it slightly wrong on that final lap by yeah just brutally diving past haslam at the complex at the start of the final lap i mean we we'd seen on so many occasions the overtakes going on into that final chicane why would you tow haslam up there um and give him the run into that final chicane and allow him to you know to draft past you because haslam was able to draft alongside him long before the corner and position himself on the inside for that chicane and leave, leave basically hang dixon out to dry uh, going to that final chicane and take the win uh, in the end with Dixon in second. Um, although Dixon, of course, has good reason to take heart from how competitive he was last weekend and the fact that he beat Haslam mm-hmm. in race two and is surely going to be in a position to race closely with Haslam when we get to the show now. But he's, he's not exactly narrowing the points gap in terms of podium credits at the moment, is he? Um, Haslam took five podium points on the weekend for his win. And even though Dixon had a second and a third, that only amounts to four podium points. So he lost a point um, to Haslam. Uh, in that respect, uh, over the weekend. Uh, there was one other story from race one, really, that we have to touch on, and it came at the final chicane. Um, um, as the battle for third raged on, it went to Peter Hickman, who we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but the reason it went to Hickman was because Jason O'Halloran, who was running third, um, got kind of barged wide at that final chicane by Josh Brooks. And, uh, yeah, it's not like two Aussies to be completely outspoken, Drake, is it? But the two didn't exactly Never. agree on it, and it wasn't as if uh, Josh Brooks was in any mood to offer apologies. No, Josh Brooks doesn't do apologies. Um, yeah, it's that was a bit silly from Brooks. I mean, yes, it's a last corner overtake. Of yeah, course, we, you're going to get, get the it, elbows yeah. out. We get that. Like, of, of course, it's going to happen. Like, it's the second time Brooks has been a bit silly in recent times about basically last corner incidents where, again, we saw it at uh, Snetterton where he very nearly pushed Haslam off the track trying to defend the victory. I don't know uh, how much of that was just naivety of not seeing where Haslam was on track or how much of that was intentional, but Brooks needs to dial it down on the final corner by one notch because I think that was silly what he did to Haller and during race one. I know they disagreed about about how that last corner played out, but uh, 
I, I put the majority of the blame on that one on Brooks. I thought he was needlessly aggressive on that one. And, you know, you can't be pushing O'Halloran out wide like that. I think he was lucky not to get a time penalty of some kind for that. Um, but, yeah, I'm like, Hickman, you know, benefits. It was, it was obviously the big winner from all of that. But I think Brooks was a bit silly in targeting O'Halloran like that. I think that was a bit too much. Hmm. And, it, and it was it was strange, the, the interviews that we saw after the race where... Um, Oh, Halloran was asked, oh, yeah, Josh has come to see you. Did he come to offer an apology? And he says, well, no, quite the opposite, actually. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and and Brooks was then asked about it by um, by Rachel Stringer of Eurosport. And he basically was like, well, yeah, he was basically waving his finger at me and giving me hand gestures. So why am I going to apologize to him? Um, and, yeah, I get what you mean, Josh, but come on, you, you kind of messed up there. No. So, um, you know, you, the least you can do is say, sorry, mate. Um, but anyway, and, and, and the thing is as well, I mean, yeah, as, as Ray said, we all get it. The final corner of a race, you're going to have a go. Uh, and, and Josh Brooks said, look, look, this is British Superbikes. This is a prestigious championship. I'm going to have a go. This is, you know, I'm not going to sit back and just take the take where I am. I'm going to try and, and make a go, have a go at it. But that, that, to me, to that. that to me had, just from watching it, and it's easy again to see, seeing it from Satya, but that looked like it had a 0% chance of working that move. Um, because, yeah. Because yeah. It, it, it's, it's not like the final chicane at Assen. Um, it's much tighter than that. It's it, it's it's a right left right where the the right hander going in is very long and it you know you can it's a bit like that long right hander going up to the final corner in in Argentina, uh, where it's a long winding right hander into a very tight left hander, um, and it immediately because that left hander is so tight, there's pretty much nowhere to go through there. Um, so for for Brooks to sort of sort of try and send the dive up the inside into that left hander, it's always going to send the two of you both wide. Um, and and even if he'd made the move, even if he'd not made contact and got ahead of him, he was just going to be mincemeat down the straight to the line anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So I just, I just, it just, it was a, it was a silly move for me that had zero percent chance of working. Um, and all he succeeded in doing was pushing Brooks out wide. Um, he ended up finishing in fourth in that race. So Halloran fell all the way back to sixth because um, Glenn Owen got him on the run to the line, and Peter Hickman came through to take the final podium position in race one. Yep. Um, Hickman would finish very closely to Brooks again in race two, but he'd be just behind him this time as Josh Brooks took the victory. Um, his third win out of four, third win, of course, of the year, and a record equaling eighth win um, at Thruxton. Um, as, uh, as Jack Burnicle and James Whitton mentioned to Shaky Burn with a few laps to go, when he mentioned that Brooks is on target to match your all-time record, to which Shaky replied, come on, Peter, um, as he was chasing Josh Brooks down. <laughs> Um, now, of course, Hickman didn't quite manage it. Brooks took the win, and um, he's closing rapidly in terms of the podium points he's accumulating. And that's 15 podium points he's accumulated now in the last three races. Um, yeah. And it has to be said, although, of course, in outright points at the moment, when we look at the championship standings, Haslam um, has 280 points to Brooks's 168 but in terms of the podium points, it's a hell of a lot closer than that. And Josh Brooks is, he's making all the right noises um, when he's not refusing to apologise in interviews that when we get to the showdown, he is going to be a formidable threat because he's, he's narrowing that podium points gap. He's narrowing that podium credits gap. He's been he's strong in the showdown rounds when he needs to be and he's excellent round brown tactics three races. Like, Haslam's not going to have an easy time of it in the showdown because Brooks, is, I think, is going to be the main threat once we get to the final seven. Because for those races are going to involve Brooks at the end. Um, so, yeah, I think Brooks is going to come on strong when the season comes to a, comes to a climax. Um, but, 
yeah, like Brooks is certainly making the right noises. He's certainly starting to get the right results in. Winning three of the last four is good for 15 podium credits. And yeah, Haslam is not just walking into every round and doubling up anymore now. So yeah, he's he's making he's doing the right things. He's getting the, the credits where he can get them now. And once the showdown comes into play, Haslam needs to be careful and maximize the first four first four races at Ass and um and and but you know the other showdown rounds as well before Brands Hatch because yeah if it doesn't keep up he's going to be in trouble because I think Brooks is going to come on very strong at the end at Brands Hatch mm, yeah Brooks has now narrowed the gap in terms of podium points to twenty seven points to Haslam Haslam has forty three Brooks has sixteen um, although fifteen of those sixteen points Brooks has accumulated in the last three races he didn't get a podium anywhere until race two at Snetterton did Brooks. Um, mm-hmm. which, of course, was the race that he very nearly won when he raced to the line with Haslam, and Dixon got between them um, on the run to the line. Um, so he's very much the four man of the last four meetings, um, is Josh Brooks. Um, although he didn't get the points necessarily at Knockhill to show for it. Um, and, yeah, as you say, it's 27 points at the moment. If he can somehow, in the next five races between you know the two at Cadwell and the three at Silverstone, if he can somehow narrow that to maybe, say, 15 to 20 that suddenly, that's that shooting range when we get to the showdown. Absolutely. Um, uh, with the pace that he's showing. So, yeah, whilst it may look on the face of it at the moment that Haslam's essentially got one hand on this trophy, um, it's a long way from done once these podium credits come into effect and the showdown resets the points. Um, as I mentioned, we'd love to talk about the, the BSB weekend in much greater detail, um, but we'll, we'll just quickly touch on a couple of important issues because the way the showdown looks at the moment, we've pretty much got four riders who are near enough certain to make it. Haslam, Dixon, Brooks and Irwin. That's Glenn Irwin, of course, who, um, along with his brother Andy, both qualified on the front row of the grid for race one at Seth Ruxton, which was a piece of uh, Superbike history, uh, with Glenn taking uh-huh. pole and Andy Irwin qualifying third on the two PBM Ducatis, uh, a team that, of course, has been speaking to Scott Redding recently if you've been following the uh, rumour mill. Um, for next year um, Glenn Irwin is fourth in the championship at the moment 163 so him upwards they all look safe fifth position is Bradley Ray who's on 119 points Danny Buchan on 111 both of those for varying reasons had terrible weekends at Thruxton and Peter Hickmandre with back-to-back rostrums his first two of the year um, is suddenly up onto 104 points he's only seven points off the top six from a near anonymous season so far, Peter Higman suddenly has a real shot of beating the showdown again. Yep, it's one of those things where it can often only take one weekend, like one good weekend, and you're in the mix. I think it was Cadwell Park. He he had that he had that double victory, and next thing you know, he was he was in the showdown. And yeah, it's happened again this year. Now he's had a double roster at Frux, and he's always gone well around yeah, there. That's, and that's now, essentially a third of his season's tally of points in one weekend. Yeah, and it doesn't help that Buckingham and Ray were, were terrible this weekend for, again, various different reasons. Um, Bradley Ray, I think, is in real trouble here now. Um, only 18 points off the last five race weekends. It's, uh, it's His season is falling apart rapidly. And, I, and you know what? It seems to be an issue with him. I don't know if it's, if it's, if it's build base in general, if they've run out of puff, given how, how well their season started. Richard Cooper's had some better results in recent times. He's shown a bit more promise on that Suzuki than Ray has in recent times. Yeah, I think Bradley Ray is in trouble. Buckingham was a bit unlucky this weekend, but I think Buckingham's got a bit more consistency at the moment than Bradley. And uh, yeah, he's in trouble, and Hickman is known for consistency. So... 
the way it's going, it could certainly be a problem going forward. Um, like Bradley, I think is in real trouble. I think Bucking, I think Bucking will be fine in the end, but uh, he needs to be careful here. Yeah, Bradley Ray is in serious danger of not making the showdown because that's another weekend where he's he's really failed to score any points at all. He did score four points in race two by finishing twelfth with what was apparently a technical problem. Um, but that's now when we go back on it, that's now four consecutive weekends where the most he scored in any Grand Prix, in any BSB weekend was 11 points. That was for the fifth he got in race one at Knock Hill. He scored zero at Snetterton, 11 at Knock Hill, three at Brands GP and four at Thruxton for the entire weekend. Uh, and that's just, yeah. that rate of scoring, if that continues for two more rounds, he's out of the showdown the way I see it because uh-huh. you know, the, the points tally he's on at the moment for Bradley Ray, fifth at the moment on 119 points, that is not enough to get you in. He needs about no. another, I'd say he needs about another, he needs 150 to get in. He needs another 30 odd points to be near, no, I agree. anywhere close to certain of getting in. Um, because that's essentially, that's only, what, six points a race from here? Five points a race yep. from here um, to get in. Um, and that's that's assuming that Hickman doesn't have another big weekend that he had last weekend. If Hickman repeats his, his points tally of, of Thruxton at Cadwell, which is his home track in a circuit that he's won at before, then Hickman's going to be, what, he's going to be up to 140 points by the end of, of Cadwell. So Bradley Ray needs to step his game up again. And, and he's a rider that we, we rate very highly. He's an outstanding young rider, one of the best young talents in Britain at the moment. Um, but he's going, he's going through a, a lean spell at the moment that he needs to snap out of quickly. Um, because if it goes on for two more rounds, he's going to miss out on the showdown um, entirely. Um, let's take you through the results from Thruxton then. And it was uh, a victory for Haslam, his first ever at Thruxton in race one, from Dixon and Hickman with Brooks in fourth, controversially from Glen Irwin and O'Halloran. Uh, Luke Mossy, the early leader, faded to seventh. Three outstanding youngsters, though, completing the top ten with Mason Law on the WD40 Kawasaki ahead of Taron McKenzie on the second of the Cam's bikes uh, and Chrissy Rouse on the Suzuki. Uh, for the household team in 10th position, all three putting in great results, great rides to get those results. Tommy Bridewell in 11th, ahead of James Ellison, Christian Iden, Sylvain Barrier, and Martin Jessup. Uh, race two went to Brooks from Hickman, just as Hickman chased him down on the final lap, with Dixon in third, Haslam fourth, uh, Taron McKenzie in fifth, uh, ahead of O'Halloran in sixth, Bridewell seventh, Mossy eighth, Glen Irwin only ninth this time, uh, and Mason Law once again in the top 10. Uh, championship standings then uh, we've kind of given you an overview of them already but here are the points it's Haslam on 280 points and he is mathematically assured of the show I don't know if you weren't already certain already that he was going to make it um, Jake Dixon is second on uh, 198 he's near enough certain himself of a place in the showdown with Josh Brooks in third 30 points behind him at the moment but would be um, as it stands only four points behind on podium points uh, Glen Owen is fourth he's almost near certain to make the showdown ahead of Bradley Ray in fifth Buck in sixth um, below the dotted line is Hickman in 7th just 7 points behind Bucken Shaky Burn is still in 8th at the moment overall on 98 points just ahead of Christian Iden Jason O'Halloran and Michael Laverty next round of the British Superbike Championship is next weekend and it takes place at the closest thing that BSB has to a street track it's Cadwell Park um, we look forward to that uh, right then, very quickly, let's um, take you through some of the news before we wrap this show up because uh, we're a couple of minutes short of the two-hour mark. So let's run you through some of the stories that are broken since we uh, last spoke to you. Uh, MotoGP tested last week at Bruno. Mark Marquez topped it. I know you're all shocked. 
Um, he did run some 2019 parts, though, um, as the team already turns its attention to its bike for next year. Um, it's one of the great luxuries of a team that really has its house in order, where your bike is so good that you can already start running parts that might serve you well in the following season. Um, Mark Marquez do. apparently was very happy with it, and there was talk that if those pieces that they put on the RC2 on 3V worked particularly well, that they might even run them as early as the Austrian Grand Prix this weekend. Um, oh, so, we'll keep, so we'll keep an eye on if uh, if Mark Marquez is indeed running 2019 machinery um, this weekend um, at the Red Bull Ring. Um, the Moto2 grid looks like it's going to have a bit of a shake-up next season. Um, we'll rattle through them quickly. Xavi Vieque looks set to join Alex Marquez at Mark VDS. Um, departing the Dynavolt team, of course. Um, Jorge Navarro looks set to switch to speed up, which would uh, leave the spot at his Grassini team open for what's expected to be Fabio Di Gian Antonio's graduation to Moto2. Um, Philip Ertl is also moving up to Moto2 from Moto3. He's going to be joining the Tech3 team, which looks set to, of course, run KTMs next year um, as part of their deal as the satellite KTM squad in MotoGP. Um, and we also look like we're going to have Jake Dixon potentially on the Moto2 grid next year. He has announced publicly uh, in an interview with MCN um, that he is targeting a spot on the Moto2 grid next year. Now, of course, we saw Jake Dixon wildcard on the Moto2 grid last year at Silverstone. He was also set to wildcard at Valencia, but missed it through injury. Um, um, but it's interesting, Dre. I mean, of those of those potential changes for next season, um, the one that really interests me, with all due respect to Jake Dixon, is Vierke going to Mark VDS, um, who, who is a rider that I've, I've I rated highly when he was on the Tech Three bike. I thought he was doing a brilliant job on what is a pretty um, modest uh, motorcycle. He's moved Agreed. to the Dynavolt. He's moved to the Dynavolt team this season on a Calix, and he's he, he is doing a very very good job um, in that team. And we look at the championship at the moment in Moto Two. Um, and he, he's doing very, very well indeed. He's up in the top seven in the championship. Um, he's seventh on 90 points ahead of his teammate, Marcel Schrotter, it must be added. Um, mm. he, he seems to me the exact kind of rider that, as we've seen with the likes of Rabat, the likes of Mob Deli in the past, if you plug him into that Mark VDS team, which we know is a world-class team at that level, I think he's more than capable within that team of taking it to wins and potentially a title challenge. I completely agree. I think Villegas come along. Three. He was even better at Dynavolt last season, you know, challenging for wins on occasion. His brilliant comeback at Le Mans on the opening lap, one of the best opening laps I've ever seen from a Moto2 rider. Um, the guy's got talent bursting out of him. He's he's really, really good. And I think with the right team of a bit more resources, like Mark VDS, who's going to focus on, on Moto2 a lot more, given they won't be in GP next season, I think that'll be the top of the food chain for him. And uh, yeah, if 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 that's the best team I think Vieira could have could have been signed for. So I'm looking forward to seeing how how he gets on with you know the arguably the best Moto Two team in the paddock supporting him. It's going to be very interesting to see how he goes. I think that's going to be a, another challenge for Alex Marquez to try and overcome because I think is quick very quick mm, yeah and we'll look forward to seeing him uh, at mark vds alongside we mentioned this earlier didn't we alex marquez always seems to have a a great young rider that just joins him in his team and ends up uh, outshining him yeah javi verke is joining alex marquez at mark vds next year uh, in moto mm-hmm. 2 uh, let's briefly uh, look at this weekend we've only got a few seconds to race so we'll try and make this quick but essentially yeah. um in one line the way i see this austrian grand prix weekend particularly in moto gp is basically Mark Marquez trying to swim against a tide of Ducatis. Yeah, seems about right. Um, yeah, I've Torvi's favourite for the weekend for just 
two to one at the moment, and rightly so. Um, he, I think he and, and Lorenzo are going to fight hard for this win, just like they did when it was Dovi versus Ian Oni a couple of years ago, and Ian Oni got his first top flight W. Um, I think Marquez, I think it might be the only guy that can probably go with them. And uh, I, mean, I mean, shoot, Marquez was a tenth off the win last year. There's no reason why he can't challenge again if the circumstances are right. And it depends on how how hard Marquez wants to try and get the win. Um, we'll have to wait and see how it goes. But I, I think Dovi is favourite for good reason. Um, I think that's I think that's the right. Uh, I think the Vickers have got that right. And yeah, can't wait to see this race this weekend because it's, it's, it, if it's anything like last year, we're going to be in for a for a dogfight. It should be great. Mm, yeah, it should be. Uh, we look forward to it this weekend. Um, we just pray, given the uh, issues, the much publicised issues about the Red Bull Ring, that it stays dry uh, this mm-hmm. weekend. Um, we shall see. Whatever happens, we will uh, review it all next week on episode um, 73. So it'd be kind of handy if uh, Alex Marquez, given how we've discussed him on the show, would take a win, given that it's the uh, show of his number next week, episode 73. Um, so um, we kind of hope he does it, because it'll be a nice story. But he'll be able to talk positively about him next week on this show. We shall see um, next week here on Bike Live. As well as that, uh, it's episode uh, 155. 155 of Motorsport 101 next week. Um, difficult one again to come to you, Dre, and ask you to what, what you're going to talk about next week, given that Formula 1 and IndyCar are still on something of a summer break. Um, mm-hmm. But at least you'll be back, right? Probably, yeah. I mean, I mean, if we record on certainly at work Monday night, but I, I should I should be back for that one on Tuesday. I reckon it will probably be an F1 mid-season review. That's a tentative suggestion at this point. I'll have a chat with the fellas on this one and see what we're going to do for that a little bit nearer the time. But if I had to hazard a guess, I think that's what it's going to be. Um, so, yeah, we can't really say much more than that on this one, unfortunately. But episode 155, I should be back on next week. Hopefully, we'll have something actually planned by then. <laughs> we shall see. If you have any ideas, of course, do, do get them to us via the various social media I'll channels. Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101 at Motorsport underscore 101 on Twitter. Um, our YouTube channel, of course, where show highlights can be found at youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. And our website is motorsport101.com. Of course, we do appreciate your support on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, if you've backed us at the $5 level, you'll be listening to this podcast before everyone else. Um, and if you back us at the $10 level, you can have access to our Discord server um, where all sorts of mayhem takes place. Uh, this evening, as we were recording this, Dre's been getting ribbed for his football team's inactivity on transfer deadline day. Uh, of course uh, why wouldn't you want to be a part of that um, do back us over there patreon.com forward slash buttersport 101 that's all from me and Dre for this week we will talk to you again next week um, but that was episode 72 of Bike Life from Motorsport 101 as Andrea Vizioso and Ducati returned to winning ways we will see you again next week <laughs> <laughs>